Hello, everybody. Welcome to ClapperCast, episode 78. I'm your host, Carson Tamar. On a very big episode, we have big movies, a lot of guests. It's going to be fun. Alina Falls is here. Paul Price is here. You know them. They're boring. Whatever. We have Jack Luke Sharp and Chris joining us. How is everyone doing today? Great, great, great. Thanks for having me. So today we are talking about The Last Duel. We'll talk, we're talking about Halloween Kills. We're talking about Lamb. And of course, we have our horror selections for the week. And why don't we start off? It was delayed a year. I know a lot of people were really excited for it. Halloween Kills. Chris, I believe you're a big franchise of the or a big fan of the franchise. You're our guest today. So I'm going to put you immediately on the spot just because I'm the worst host in the world. What are your thoughts on Halloween Kills? Oh, wow, that's a trick-or-treat, Carson. So, uh, you know, the thing is, yes, huge fan of the 78 original. I've actually watched pretty much all the Halloween movies. Um, so this one was pretty anticipated for me. A little disappointed, obviously, when it didn't go to a streaming service just because I wanted something to watch last year. So I was, I was there Thursday night to see Halloween Kills. Uh, I had, I'd say, pretty good expectations going into it. I wasn't a huge fan of Halloween, not the 78 version not the Rob Zombie version, the 2018 version that preceded this one. Um, a little lukewarm on that one. And this one might have left me a little bit colder. Um, I mean, I, I, I thought that there was some really interesting material that could have been mined from this that maybe wasn't. Uh, I think that it was really interesting to see the 78 version um, or the, the flashbacks to what happened in 78, basically seeing this timeline's version of Halloween 2. I kind of want to see more of that. Um, I like seeing Loomis recreated in what I learned was makeup, not any kind of CGI effects, which is phenomenal. And I thought he looked amazing. I was a little disappointed that the only uh, little glimpse into 78 that we got, though, was the fact that Michael wandered around the neighborhood, uh, killed somebody, and then got caught outside the house when he just kind of surrendered to the police. The rest of this, I mean, I, I know we'll, we'll probably talk about this uh, a lot here, but I think that Halloween ends, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I'll, I'll be so hyped up to see it on an opening night. I don't know that. I mean, I know that now they're setting it like four years, so it's, it's going to be taking place in the present. Um, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go on board right now. I don't know what everybody else's thoughts are, but I did not love this one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not the big biggest fan of the Halloween franchise, to be fair. Mm. I think number one's highly overrated. I like like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> I like the 2018 version. I like Halloween 5. That's about it. I have the worst opinions ever, I know. But Halloween Kills, I was excited for. I liked Halloween, the 2018 version enough. Maybe it was because I really liked the Comic-Con presentation on it. But this one was it was just not good, was it? I think it's bad in two aspects. Number one, it just seemingly doesn't understand like Michael Myers and just what Halloween is. The fact that you have a flashback where he kills Jim Cummings, good on you movie. I'll say no matter what you do that was bad, you kill Jim Cummings, my mortal enemy in this life. So good on you there. But you have Michael Myers run, question mark. I was very confused by like, okay, the entire gimmick is that he like slowly walks for all these films. And then in the flashback, you have him just run out of nowhere. So I was like, well, that's a little confusing. But then as a slasher, there's just no structure. There's no like purpose or plot. It's just like random killing, which to be fair, I think a lot of the Halloween franchise is just generic in the sense where it's just getting to these kills. And there are fun kills. I'll give the film that. But like, 
I don't know, when you mix that and then also just like, we can talk about the representation in this film, it really just left me cold. I don't think there was any purpose to the film. And I like the idea of like, oh, the community coming together with their trauma and fighting Michael Myers. I dig the idea. The film just did nothing with it. And then to see the ending of this film and be like, well, in four years, like in the world of the film, obviously one year in real life, this meetup is going to happen again. Doesn't really make sense why it would take four years. And then also you have the director coming out and saying the sequel will deal with the pandemic. And it's just like, yeah, I'm not sure about this one. Um, I'll, I'll see it, you know, especially hopefully it's streaming on Peacock. That's how I watched this. Thank God I didn't go to the theater for it because I am a coward when it comes to horror films. But like, yeah, it didn't didn't do much for me. No. And it's funny that you talk about Michael walking because I didn't recognize Michael Myers in this movie. This was this was Jason wearing a Michael Myers, William Shatner mask. I mean, I, and listen, the thing is, of course, you go into these movies, these slashers, and you want to see the kills. And, and kill he does. Halloween does indeed kill. And I will say that on that premise alone, it delivers. At the same time, I mean, I don't know if it's my sensibilities have changed, but I did think some of the kills were a little gratuitous just in terms of their meme. I mean, the old couple that for some reason, Michael Myers just decided to hide in, in their bathroom at one point, And then they come in and he literally spends the film, you know, making basically a Halloween decoration out of the old man who, you know, was just trying to fly a little gadget with his wife. I just kind of didn't understand why, why these two were getting the brunt of his punishment and not, you know, your random person that we enjoy seeing killed in one of these movies. Well, the whole arts and crafts, like in the original, it has to do with his mother and it makes sense. Here, it's just for some reason he does arts and crafts. Like again, right. and also then you have the flashback sequence where like Loomis just casually walks by him to get into the house to be like, did he kill someone? Also, I might be crazy. Was it inferring that he turned himself in? Because he just kind of like chilled in front of cops for five minutes. And I was talking to oh, my yeah. friend about it. And he was like, no, that's not what it meant. But I was like, no, it definitely feels like that's what they were going for is he just kind of casually turned himself in and just like chilled. It just, I agree with you, but let's, I'm going to let other people yeah. talk. <laughs> Go ahead, Jack. I think you're the most positive, so. Oh, that was going to be my opening line. Sticky in the <laughs> um, middle. <laughs> I, th I think I think I am I am more positive than than as Chris is cast and probably from other people. I mean, I, I saw this at, um, in the same day as the last duel, the premiere. Um, I, I think I, I watched it, and uh, I'm one of those that like <laughs> like one of those dickheads who I rocked up in Italy, blistering heat, in a Halloween black Halloween T-shirt, where everyone wear, is wearing shirts and suits and stuff. So. I was, I was really looking forward to it, just, just to get out there as well. I'm a big fan of David Gordon Green. I really like his comedic um, ventures with uh, Danny McBride. Eastbound and Down, one of my favorite things. Vice Principles, I adore. Um, so I, I appreciate their craft. So in 2017, when this the, the idea that he was going to make a Halloween film and make it um, a sequel slash remake slash reboot, and Danny McBride was writing it with him as a fan, that that was incredibly skeptical and i saw it opening night halloween night in seattle um with my, with my my girlfriend at the time really enjoyed it didn't have much it's there it's a sense from the from the 11 that there is it's good i'm a big fan of halloween 2 the rob zombie uh, sequel i like halloween um, rob zombie's uh, 2007 film the director's cuts um i like the original diminishing returns i like rick rosenthal's sequel but again, diminishing returns. Um, I think we're on, <laughs> as, as, as life is cyclical, I think we're on the same path here. I think that we're going to get diminishing returns in this, in this trilogy of sorts. Um, 
So I've got I've got a, a bit, bit of uh, interest in, in, in my latter half of my statement here, but the first part of it is the substance in this film from a filmmaker has to be incredibly mature. You have to be able to di direct tone. You have to be able to balance it. You have to have a filmmaker that can discuss social commentary with this genre and the the mold and how to meld it together has to be. From a, from a director who knows their stuff. We've just seen it in Candyman with Nia DaCosta, where I think she got 70 to 80% of it correct, but there are still issues where it doesn't meld very well. Um, that film's its, its own entities. I'll leave that for another day, but I don't think David Gordon Green has got the capability as a director, as well as a writer with McBride, to really substantiate the, the, the social commentary here, specifically about um, group uh, vengeful mentality. Um, scapegoating. I just think like it's an interesting idea to have on paper, but it doesn't translate onto the film of what they want to do in. And that sequence, whether whether in the hospital in a cinema, is actually horrifying to watch. Not for the reasons the film intends, just for how it's produced. Um, how it deals with Michael Myers is very interesting. But this film in Ultima is very flat. Even even I, I'm a three star person on this, but the film is incredibly flat, flat throughout. It feels like a sequel that is like the two towers where it doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end, but it tries to structure it as such. Now, there are certain sequences in here where I'm, I'm left puzzled. Elements where I'm meant to be either thrilled, didn't do it, where I'm surprised that the ending just made absolutely no sense with the character of Judy Greer. This is where I come down to it. And also, I, I don't know this to be true. I've heard murmurings as well, so I don't want to put this as fact. There might be people in this call that might know more than me. When these two were announced, I was led to believe that they were going to shoot back to back. Now, I, I believe that the original was meant to shoot back to back with one sequel. And J Blumhouse, Jason Blum told them, no, make the first film, we'll give you a bigger budget, and this is what happened. I was led to believe that Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends were shooting back to back and released a year apart. Now, I'm, get, I'm getting word that um, David Gunn hasn't even finished a screenplay for the third film yet. Now. From someone who, who, who's watched this industry from afar for 10 years, the last three or four years has got, got to know firsthand of how people work in this thing, in this, in this, um, this industry. Uh, I think there's mass issues on set here. I think there's mass issues with how this film was produced, how it was created. They had no idea of substance. And I think they're giving themselves four years, contextual within the time frame, but probably another two to give them some breathing space because the only thing that will save this film in retrospect is how the third one begins and how it ends. Because if it's set four years after this, then that, that chunk of grief and that chunk of trauma that Jamie Lee Curtis on the press store wants to announce every other second, it just becomes redundant. So there is, there's definitely an issue within this filming, uh, or the, the filmmaking craftsmanship here, where I think a few people have got cold feet the fact that David Gordon Green has been given the Exorcist trilogy and he's written the first two and now he's doing the third um, before he's even even landed this film in, for major, in major audiences, for ma in major states, major countries, ma major uh, in internationals um, is a massive cause for concern. I think we'll see this third film. It wouldn't surprise me if David Gordon Green wouldn't make that film. I think there's another Rob Zombie-esque uh, third uh, film uh, conundrum that Miramax had with him. I think it will also happen here. I think there's issues of, of, of what to do with this franchise. Granted, Car Carpenter is the grandfather or the godfather 
and he's, he's, he's there to say yes to everything. This film is such a far cry from the Carpenter original, like Chris will say. I think it's going to shock a few people, and I don't think they're going to be there for round three. I like the film. I think it's vicious. I think it's vile. I think it's ferociousness, but it's not the Carpenter film of its, of its predecessor in 2018. It's certainly not of 78. It feels like the, the 07 and 2011 Rob Zombie films, and people didn't want to watch those. It's not Carpenter. It's not Halloween. It's not the, the substance of that. So I don't know, I, 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 from the moments I've heard and, and from the inclination that you can see, I think this, is, this franchise has got major issues yet to come. Yeah, no, um, I was not a fan of this at all. But um, one of the things that's interesting is I also didn't like 2018. Um, I found it just a little slow um, with Chris on that. But one of the weirdest things is all of 2018 is about Lori's trauma and the fact that she can't move on and everyone else has. And then this film retcons that and says, no, no, actually everyone who even remotely was around Michael is traumatized. And Lori wasn't a part of this group of people who were ready for my, it's so weird. It's like her old uh, kid that she was babysitting. She's not going to be in that group sitting at that bar with them, like hanging out the night, uh, Michael Myers 40 years ago um, it really makes it confusing as to what was going on in 2018 for her because this is the same night and she could have been with them and they all could have worked together um, it's weird that she doesn't text people and be like hey Michael Myers is here since they're like you know this group of people who all care um, but throughout the movie I watched all three the um, 78 the 18 and then this all back to back to back and it's interesting to watch, like, there's things that having not seen the sequels, characters will, like, have moments that don't reference this chronology. Uh, especially there's a moment with uh, the nurse. I think Marion was her name. Chris, I don't remember. Uh, yeah. Um, and she goes, this is for Dr. Loomis. And Dr. Loomis had very little to do with her. They had one scene together at the beginning of a movie, and she, like, gave him a drive and she's like we were best friends <laughs> like it makes no sense and also loomis was not killed by michael in this scenario so why would it be for dr loomis um there's so many things like that that feel like both this is a different continuity but also you have to have watched the, you know what carson did watch all of them to understand like a lot of these references um there's even references to the third movie apparently um, there's the masks or something, um, which I understand is like cutesy, but also feels like defeating the purpose of having a very like easy to access movie. Uh, but yeah, even to your point, Jack, talking about the um, the mob mentality, I did not realize that was supposed to be political whatsoever until I like got out of the theater and was reading people like the political didn't work. I was like, oh, I mean, we've seen this this kind of like, the mob goes after the wrong person so many times that like, I didn't even see it as like trying to be something new. I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, we had this in beauty and the beast when I was four, <laughs> like this has just been a thing that we do. Um, even like Frankenstein and all those things, you know, go after the beast. Uh, I didn't see it as some huge political message, which I feel like he was meaning to do. Um, I guess I'm glad it's not more on the nose, but you wanted to talk about the representation stuff. 
I mean, I just think killing every single person of color in your LGBT relationship, <laughs> which also like plays into just the most basic of stereotypes you can is like definitely a choice, especially when it's completely unneeded and doesn't do anything in your actual feature. I, I just think we talked about horror. I mean, we've talked about this countless times, specifically with horror about like directors and filmmakers not being aware of like what they're actually saying and just including representation to have representation. And just like, yeah, it's probably not a great thing just to kill all of them. And I, I get you'd be like, oh, but we had them. But like, yeah, it's not really meaningful. I mean, at least it's not St. Maud where the thesis once again is gay people are actual demons, but it still is a choice, isn't it? I think that comes down to my point originally about maturity in a filmmaker and writer. I don't, that, that, those sequences when I was watching it, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm watching Vice Principles. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm watching, I'm watching Eastbound and Down. Oh, no, no, sorry, I'm, I'm watching, uh, you know, Righteous Gemstones. I was sat there and I was like, they might work appropriately in those comedic entities because the genre, they, they can make fun of them referential, the, you know, the, the jokes aside. But I'm sat here watching a Halloween film where we have two people of colour who they, 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 the, the screenplay has no idea to write aside from stereotypical, um, you know, dialogue and stuff like that that surround them. And then to call to call your two um, gay characters in this film, Big John, Little John, I like there's a, there's a joke you're trying to go there, which is fine, but it doesn't land whatsoever because you're undercutting that with trying to get political substances here, and and it's like the, the the tone is just like so hit and miss, hit and miss. It's like a a constant up and down where it just definitely feels that maybe it's like the George Lucas with Star Wars thing. Maybe, maybe David Gordon Green could have hit the ball off the, with a bat and, had the, and, and, and you know, hit it for first base. But I think it was time that someone else came in for a second and someone else came with, came with a third one because the maturity doesn't fall through here. And there's massive tonal differences. Like I said, like, like, the, uh, like you said, Carson, the, there's some very strange um, representation here that may not be conscious, but it's still present regardless. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting, uh, all the stuff we're talking about, because uh, both Chris and I read the script before it was leaked, and um, we read it before, and that was written in 2019, like a good time before the, um, and that was actually when it was leaked, so, um, but it's interesting, it's almost exactly the same. Um, I don't remember if there were any differences, uh, just placement of the opening scene, right, Chris? Um, other than that, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, and the, I think the only thing that's really different is just the ending ends with Lori in the hospital, you know, setting her up for a rematch because at that point, it looked like the movie was going to continue again into Halloween Ends like that same night because you would think too, with the title, it was a clever play on words of, oh, Halloween Ends because the sun is going to be literally coming up as this film ends, which apparently is not the case. Um, and it's funny that, you know, you talk about uh, David Gordon Green and his mom mentality and things like that. It, it does feel like at times you're watching two different movies because, you know, not to underpine Tommy's trauma or anything, but in that first movie, he catches a glimpse of the shape and then he's out of there. And here he is 40 years later as is brought up again and again and again, as people constantly recall things that happened 35, 40 years ago. Here he is at the bar kind of, you know, okay, I'm c commiserating with these survivors, which I'm curious how he even got in touch with Marion who drove a car and wasn't in Haddonfield at all that night. Um, and then he goes into this kind of bloodthirsty, you know, uh, lock her up type chant because we haven't even mentioned Evil Dies Tonight, which is shocking. Oh, We've gotten God. this far in the podcast and not brought up <laughs> Evil Dies Tonight, which really could be the subtitle for this movie. 
Oh, so good. Yeah, uh, one of my friends mentioned that um, when they accidentally kill some random other mentally ill person um, who looks nothing like anything related to Mike Myers to where like when everyone's just like, that must be the guy. He's also not wearing the mask. It doesn't have anything. Um, but after he splats on the ground, apparently the characters start chanting evil died tonight. And I did not notice that. And it kills me. <laughs> I wish I had heard so that. So good. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, apparently it's like they look down and immediately change the chant. <laughs> I mean, you gotta give them credit for that. That mob mentality works then. But I mean, like, yeah, that was silly too. I mean, you saw the doctors and nurses literally shoving past people, like, you know, knocks Judy Greer down. I was like, have all these people. I mean, and you get it. We've seen events in the world people have indeed lost their minds but i thought that was almost just like a, a little silly too you know here's these people abandoning their post to like go chase down a guy who doesn't look anything like this person that they're supposedly after or that they've been so traumatized by it they know exactly what he looks like because he appears in their dreams every night yeah and that's true we're acting like he's not been able to like be something you can just look up because if michael myers was kidnapped there would be you know footage of all his trials and everything that happened since then um and the fact that they're like we have no clue what he looks like um he could be this like four foot nine man <laughs> yeah, but they do because based on the 2018 version one of the whole things was that they went to go get the mask because they're doing this podcast about michael myers and they knew yeah. that that was such a big deal so i believe in this world there's probably like you know 25 to 50 different true crime podcasts about what happened in haddonfield in 1978 Specifically with the bar scene, I got a lot of weird of like 9-11 feelings from it, like parallels to 9-11. And this entire conversation about like, oh, you just want to fight the enemy, but you don't know what the enemy looks like. So you take it out on anything that kind of looks like it. I just got a lot of weird 9-11 vibes from it, which was just weird because like it's Halloween. It was weird. I, what a downer. Like Imagine being yeah. at that bar on Halloween. Like they're doing a talent show. And then this guy gets up there and is like, I'm going to talk about something that happened to me 40 years ago for 20 minutes and shine the spotlight on yeah. people. You're like, come on, bro. Like move it, move it along. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and everyone there is like, yeah, that's why we're here. My favorite part is when they're like, um, oh, these people are so annoying for popping champagne. And then they're like, oh, apologizing. And I was like, they're still weird. <laughs> they're still like <laughs> complaining about something that happened to them. Like, yeah, nearly half a century ago. Um, but yeah, even like the choices in the death, you know, not to get into spoilers, but like they would introduce, and this is my problem with 2018 too. They would introduce characters, spend way too much time on them, kill them off, in the like first half of the movie and then we had to be introduced to a whole new group of characters um especially because uh laurie's completely out of commission on this one um they introduced this couple who's a nurse and doctor even though the nurse is dressed like the doctor and the doctor's dressed like the nurse which i did not understand why that was supposed to be funny but they said it like four or five times um because it's a woman you it, think a woman can be a doctor? <laughs> oh, doctor. oh my god <laughs> That was my mistake. I was very confused that uh, that was even possible. But, um, you know, they have, they're immediately killed off. And I was like, oh. And actually, in, you know, to your point, Chris, probably the meanest death of the movies. She's just hit, she's shooting at Michael. He hits her with a car door and she shoots herself in the face. And then Michael just stares at her while she gurgles. And I was like, Oh, by the way, the entire script multiple times uses gurgles every time someone dies. And like, I almost wanted to do like, take a shot every time someone gurgles to death. 
Um, it's so weird, but yeah, all of the things felt really mean. It's also interesting, um, that one of the characters from the original of that group survives this and completely disappears from the movie. Um, I'm assuming to be in the next one, but, uh, I have no clue why that was even shown at that point then. Uh, it's Kyle Richards' character. I forgot her name. Well, appar- apparently, um, she didn't do Botox for two weeks before shooting, so she could emote as well. Yeah, <laughs> she uh, she missed her Botox appointment. Yeah, it's wild. Gotta go back to the Real Housewives of Haddonfield. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know? I, I'm, Chris, you might be might be better on this than me. I've seen all all these films, right? And um, when I watched it at the premiere. I sat and I was like, oh, wow, there's like, there's just no ramifications of this. Like, I just don't feel like there's anything that people are going to talk about afterwards. Um, and then it went quiet for a while. And then on release on the 15th of October, I kept on seeing like Games Radar, Total Film, the UK branch, and a few in the US, like Screen Man, stuff like that, kept on putting out features and, and editorials about the ramifications of where this ends. Like, it, what does it mean for the franchise? And I, I'm, I'm kind of perplexed by that because having seen it twice now, I don't really understand what, what, what angle there is because one, there's a major character that dies, but it's shot so poorly, it's almost ambiguous. And then the second is that the film, and then this is not, I think this might be spoilers here, so apologies to, to um, Paul's number one fan out there, but um, it, it has a revelation that Michael Myers is indeed the shape, of which anyone who has seen this, as Paul said earlier, has any seen any of the films, would, would know anywhere. So I don't understand what it hides as a secret here. Aside from the, the the Loomis thing, which is not, I mean, it's it's a nice callback, it's a nice Easter egg, but it's not a major uh, ram- uh, revelation. It doesn't have any ramifications for the next film. It just seems like people are trying to write about this film and and, and create um, and, and mysticism around it, or or to give it a, a leg up, and for it to make fifty million, as well as premiere on Peacock. I mean, what does that say about Peacock to begin with? But uh, it feels like people have got really no idea. Uh, of what this film has actually got to say. And uh, weirdly, I think they're correct because I don't think the film has any idea where to go with it either on a this, franchise level. I don't know your thoughts. This is yeah. why I asked you because you said in the Slack chat, you're like, oh, we should do a spoiler chat. I was like, what are you going to possibly get into? Like, there's <laughs> nothing this that's going to like, just, okay. Um, it's just, I guess now Lori's really mad at Michael. You know, Lori really wants to beat up Michael now when, but you're going to set it <laughs> in four years in the future. So it's going to be past pain just like the 2018 version so cool but it, yeah. it's funny though that you talk about that too right because you know you, you want to talk about like a spoiler special but then you'd be like well i don't even understand fully that ending that occurs with this character our main character we believe to be killed because I, i'm sh- i'm not even sure what happened in that sequence in terms of what she saw what she thought she saw what was happening there i understand in terms of halloween that fans are supposed to go oh this is exactly what happens in the opening moments of the first one but why and why is that attracting her there what's drawing her there it's almost like i mean there was a moment when i thought like oh my god are we gonna get back to druids in this thing are we going back to some kind of mysticism because it doesn't jive with the rest of the movie which tells us that here is michael myers who is this unstoppable force which i think this movie definitely goes forward to to be like he is not human or i mean laurie does a whole speech about how he's transcending every time he's hurt he manifests this pain that becomes part of his armor i mean fine I, we, we accept that through every slasher movie scream makes a joke out of the fact that you could shoot the killer and, and stab them but they're gonna pop up at the end fine I, I don't have any problem with that i can let go of that 
it was just very odd that everything seemed to kind of be quieting down on Halloween night. And all of a sudden this character sees an image, feels like they're compelled to wander somewhere and then suffer the fate of someone that started this whole thing. And right, it was played, like you said, as almost like this big revelation. It's like, no, we, we know it's Michael Myers. Everyone knows, everyone knows the Michael Myers house. The, the couple that lived there, Big John and Little John, knew the history of it. So I'm not really sure what revelation we were supposed to take from there that would have been like, oh, wow, big spoilers. Yeah. You know, the, the, go, on, Paul. go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, just... yeah. It, <laughs> it go is, ahead. It, Keep on doing it. I'm sorry. It is interesting uh, just how much, like, you know, we always try to, like, avoid spoilers for the most part. And it's, like, going through, and it's, like, I guess there's, like, two things mildly. But, like, it does feel like one of those things where if I watch the 2018 – and then I wanted to go see Halloween ends. You could be like, oh, yeah, in the last one, this happened. And that's it. We're done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the second movie in a series, like, you know, uh, I will push back a little bit on, like, what you were saying with Two Towers. I don't think you could do that with this. I don't think, like, or, uh, you know, I don't think in Two Towers you could go, oh, yeah, this one thing happened, and that's what's important <laughs> for the next. In this one, it's like there's one moment. And honestly, if that had been tacked onto the ending of 2018, it be the same you could jump ahead completely um so it just makes this movie feel really inconsequential which kind of sucks because it's a bunch of legacy characters being brutally killed off but it doesn't really like have any weight to it do you know um <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> this might go to show how much how much a little i was like taken back from there's a sequence uh, when, when at the ending when judy grew go, judy Grey goes up the stairs and she looks out the window right and she's looking out and she sees Haddonfield and it's where Michael, where Michael used to stand. And for an instance, there's, she, she looks out at the camera, it goes all silent, it zooms in slightly and there's a reflection of Michael's mirror just where, where, where she would be, right? And it's like, it's like he's, he's behind her, but we get the reflection. I was like, for, for a split second, I need to preface, for a split second, I was like, genius. Like, you, 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 like it's, it, you've made it all, you've, you've done the thing where you've reinforced the mob mentality where as, as much as Judy Gray and her family, the, the Strudes, think they're doing the right thing. They've ultimately destroyed one person. Um, they're fighting fire with fire. And it's an interesting conversation about how people need to deal with grief, whereas coming to terms with it or, or again, you know, fighting for revenge is that ultimately she is a reflection of, of her crimes and that she, they've, 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 they've killed this person. For good or for bad, I think that's a conversation that, having the film i mean michael myers is a murderer pretty pretty much selfly self-entitled self-titled just there but in that split second i was like like you you're trying to do something there and i was like oh wow excellent and it cuts back outside the house and the, the, the thing happens and it sums up my relationship with this film and 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 specific, specifically with the first film the 2018 one as well is that there is an opportunity here to do something and they're almost there getting the basics right of just understanding the substance but just undercut themselves constantly like adding things that are silly and 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 not being able to sort of put a, a full stop on something but like let's just do it like this they have to keep on shoveling shit on the fire to, in order for it to look massive and burn away but ultimately it gets out, it gets out of hand and it burns all the foundation um and unfortunately that's what really happens here there's moments where you think okay interesting and then it just falls on its sword and it's a sad, it's a sad display to say that there's there's 2018 is a, is a is a strong if not you know 
complimentary film for fans of the series for what as what Paul says for, for to destroy its legacy here by adding more legacy I just I don't know I'm just like I'm sat there I mean like what's what what's the brain here I, I just I don't understand it this is the fate with Halloween the franchise though like I love Halloween 5 the biggest issue in my opinion is that Halloween 6 drops the ball and they do nothing with it and it turns to shit it does it with Halloween 1 and it changes and recontextualizes itself in Halloween 2 and in my opinion in a very lackluster way that hurts the first film that's just the story of this franchise they have an interesting idea but then they drop the ball for some reason and fuck it up I don't get why they do it three four times in the same franchise that's what they do so what you're saying here, Carson, is that David Gordon Green is a master craftsmanship who's done a meta <laughs> approach to the Halloween franchise itself. Better than Jim Cummings. Better than Jim Cummings. Let, let's not bring that name up. I mean, the movie did start off promising. You know, it yeah. really did. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what's weird too, though, especially talking about legacy and things like that, just to, just to harp on this for a second, is the movie 2018 and this one goes out of its way to be like, no, 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 no. Michael and Lori are not brother and sister. This was all an accident. She had main character syndrome. She thought for all these years he was coming home. He had nothing to do with her, which kind of undercuts the big finale that we're promised here with Halloween ends because it's like, okay, now Jamie Lee Curtis really does have a reason, I guess, you know, to go after Michael, but Michael doesn't even know who she is. Michael doesn't care. If he really has no clue, there's no part of him that when he wandered to her farmhouse at the end is like, oh, wait, don't you look familiar? Like, oh, I think I know you. Like, no, no, no. And he's not coming after her again. He's got nothing to do with her. So it's kind of weird that we now have this big finale that's going to be personal for her, but so indifferent for our main villain, who is not purposefully coming after her for whatever. I mean, who knows in four years? I mean, where, where is he? I, <laughs> it's so many questions. Like, where, where is he just chilling? He's hiding? Did he get brought back to Smith's Grove for the, well, I guess this will only be like the second time. So, I mean, I think it all comes down to please take the exorcist away from David Gordon Green <laughs> now and save us all. Yeah, no. Uh, okay, actually, I do have a question. I've been trying to look this up, and maybe you guys know, why is Judy Greer in a Christmas sweater this entire film? I kept, my brain kept going, oh, it's set during Christmas. No, it's Halloween. It's literally called Halloween. <laughs> but she's in a Christmas sweater. And it really just like bugged me. And I couldn't remember if that was her costume from the 2018 movie or what, but the entire film, she's just chilling in a Christmas sweater. Do you guys remember? Just stupid. Okay, great. I think maybe <laughs> in her household, they hate Halloween so much that they just pretend it's second Christmas. Yeah, I, I, I do the I, same I thing, so I can't judge, honestly. Yeah, I, I had presumed that they'd given you clothes after she got to the hospital with all the blood on it. <laughs> so I, they're I'm, like, here you go. Yeah, do you a give Christmas a lost sweater. Property, yeah. <laughs> Last, that's never been cleaned for like a year and a half. It's yeah. just the weirdest thing to put her, especially, you know, when she has like really important moments and she's sitting around in this really tacky Christmas sweater, screaming to Michael about, uh, you know, his mask and everything. Um, but yeah, uh, I, you know, to your point, guys, you talk about like the, the violence and stuff. Um, I recently have gotten to where I can handle, um, you know, more violent stuff, uh, just like by pushing myself to watch the movies and stuff uh, to where I was like, pretty sure I would make it through this one. Fine. Uh, Candyman was the first one. I was like, oh, I'm going to be so grossed out. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. But uh, there are some things in this. And it's usually to your point, Carson, <laughs> about like the people that are representation that I was like, 
oh, this is pretty gross. I don't think we needed this much, especially uh, I want to say it's Big John. Uh, his death is like, this is excessive and weird. And also like, uh, you know, again, is one of those things where it's like, okay, but like, is it nest? Do these characters deserve a intense death compared to like Tommy who's introduced and like, is the, I guess the secondary antagonist based on uh, Green's own like version of this story, uh, whether or not you read it as that. Um, and he gets a very like calm, I mean, it's still violent, but it's like comparatively, it's like, ah, that was fine. It's one of the lesser deaths in this. And I was like, oh, I was really expecting him to get torn to shreds because, you know, he's the big uh, antagonist for Michael. Just interesting. Okay, and next up, let's jump over to Ridley Scott, our man who's bringing us House of Gucci. Sadly, we're not talking about that today. It is coming, everyone. But today, we are talking about The Last Duel. Jack, I'll throw it over to you. You saw this one at Venice, I think it was. You know, I, you were the first one, I think, out of Clapper to get your reactions out there. What were your reactions to The Last Duel? Is this good? Is it bad? <laughs> Introduce it. I, I, think, I think you have to sort of explain beforehand that I'm a, I'm a quite big fan of Ridley Scott. We've done a a few podcasts on him and his brother. So I need to get that in the, in the room first and foremost. Um, with the Venice lineup, it was one of the more, one of the ones I was most sort of skeptical about knowing what Ridley Scott is like and also the one that I was most looking forward to. Um, I think it was only a few days beforehand. It was like three hours long or two hours, I think 30. No one really knew what, the, what it was about aside from the actual context of uh, the, the, the historic figures. I think the, the narrative... It's three-act Rashomon-inspired structure. I think that came quite late. So when me and Nick were there, I was I was quite excited to see it. Weirdly enough, no one was really in the theatre. There's another film you're going to touch on today as well. Um, and also, no one really wanted to see uh, Halloween Kills and this. So that didn't really fill me with much confidence. But as Ridley Scott, <laughs> Ridley Scott ethics go, um, you know, when you go to like the counsellor and things like this. I was really surprised at how good it was. Um, there's a lot of really strange decisions in here. First and foremost, there's <laughs> Ben Affleck, Matt Damon playing Brits. Ben Affleck in particular after Shakespeare and Love is a strange one. Um, they come together quite well, although they don't really share many scenes. Um, there's a lot of strange <laughs> iconography here, costume design. And Mullet works as a character, Ben Affleck's bleach blonde. Oh, sorry, what the... Um, you know, you've, you've got, can everyone hear me all right? You've got, yeah. you know, Jodie Comer, which is like this star, well, the shining star in British uh, entertainment uh, at the moment. And everything comes together really well. I think there's a, there's a structure here, of course. It, it, each act has an individual, uh, and I put quote unquote unique aspect to proceedings where people will see certain elements in their own individual interpretation, others, their perception will change. I think the, the, the one biggest issue that people will probably have is that those individual arcs aren't particularly different to a standard where you can tell um, quite literally that people are seeking or seeing things in, in a different interpretation. I think that the, the nuanced and the subtle, but I think for, for most, most audience members, it's gonna sort of be uh, a quite a drag retelling. Uh, I think the scale is excellent. Um, the scope is, is astonishing. But I said in my review, it's, it's interesting because it's not a visual scope that Ridley Scott goes for, like Blade Runner, um, 
Exodus, Gods and Kings, stuff like that, Kingdom of Heaven. This feels like it's an internal scope, very different to his, his sort of filmography that's come before it. So it was a pleasant surprise to even sort of enjoy that. Um, again, like I said, the, the performance is really good, but the two standouts, of course, Adam Driver and Jodie Comer. Uh, um, Adam Driver, I think, could probably do anything now, and I'd probably be there. Um, you know, I think it's, it's quite an astonishing way where he's sort of evil in this film in a way that he, he sort of exudes um, this charisma, which is really chilling. But the, 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 the queen here is, is Jodie Comer. And after watching Free Guy and understanding how, she, how good she is in that, and I mean, I'm not going to go into the, the Free Guy debate, but it's an entertaining prospect of whatever it is, although it has its detractors. She's in a film called Help this year on Channel 4 in Britain, where she plays a, um, a care home assistant in the wake of COVID-19 in a Liverpool um, a nursing home. And she's stunning in it. She's, she's tremendous. But she's equally as good in this, and she's equally as good in Free Guy. And it offers really sort of an idea of where she can go forward, because I don't think she's, she's stoppable. I think she can, she can brood. She has range. I mean, Killing Eve, she's it's a perfect example of, of how many layers she can she can construct. Um, so really the performances were, were excellent. The scales, terrific. It was constantly entertaining for what, 155 minutes. Um, but yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was a really good return to form and to see the box office results um, are quite heartbreaking, but um, I'm really, really glad we've got to see someone who was at what, 85, crafting such a, a, an astonishing piece of work. So yeah. If, uh, I was really surprised with that. Quite a muted response for someone who gave it five stars. I'll be a little bit more open about like, I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, there are definitely some things we'll talk about that I think I'm willing to hear complaints and concerns about. But I think this is just a really wonderfully crafted Me Too medieval tale um, that's just haunting. I think that's one word you could use to describe this. Um, the duel at the end, not to get into spoilers, is like one of my favorite action scenes. One of the most intense action scenes, I guess I should say, that I've ever seen in cinema, specifically because I didn't know the ending of this. I didn't know which way it was going to go. And it does such a good job building the stakes. As you mentioned, Comer's fucking untouchable in this film. Like, Driver's great. Damon is okay you know he's he's there he's giving it his all not as good as still water got that mullet going rocking some now jack luke sharp quotes for some reason he dressed like you in still water now he's talking like you don't understand why um but comer is amazing and just the emotion of that final duel it literally just like edge of your seat amazing um i do think there are it's a little taxing at times towards the beginning especially in the middle i guess i should say when you do get that it's telling the same story three different times especially that second time it feels like there probably should be a little bit more when it comes to differences than there are in certain scenes um but overall i was like genuinely floored by this i had no expectations for the film i don't like medieval films typically um same with westerns it's just like it's a period piece of aesthetic i can't really get into a lot of the time this one, no issues. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I guess I'll go next. I'm probably the most mid of all you guys. Uh, I saw it last night, and uh, I do like it, but I think that the Rochamon style was originally done for what the original story kind of is, um, if you kind of like read a little backstory into uh, the main characters, it's still contentious among like scholars what actually happened. And I think that was the pitch was, you know, 
what did happen in that room? Did it did it even happen? I believe Legree always said that he never had sex with her whatsoever. And it was just a petty thing um, from Matt Damon's character. And I think that that was the original script with uh, Ben and Matt would have been their initial pitch. And then when they brought in uh, Nicole Holofcener, who I love, she did a different story, which is also good, but they left in the Rochamon style. And so uh, to your point, um, Jack, and one of the things Alina will bring up, I felt like some of the stuff that's like supposed to be shocking, especially in Jodie Comer's section, um, is just like weirdly un- unimpactful in terms of the storytelling and also excessive. Um, so I was sitting there and I was just like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess we're rewatching these scenes again and there's mild differences. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things that maybe even on the page reads differently. Um, but like a single line that I heard 45 minutes ago, I'm not going to remember again when it's replayed with a slight change. Um, and then I feel like it's it's using the Rochamon style and then ending with mild spoiler uh, that Jody Comer's is listed as the truth makes me go, well, then why did I just watch two other people's stories? Um, well, ultimately, like if you're not having me decide then like there is no point in a Rochamon style. Um, and I feel like they were the correct choices. I just feel like I would have cut that aspect um, ultimately uh, and then just played it straight, which would have been just as interesting. Um, but I'll throw it to you, Alina, because I know you have the similar uh, concerns, but also liked it more than me. Yeah. Um, I think this is my favorite Ridley Scott movie so far because I don't like particularly like him um like his sci-fi movies are like whatever but his historical movies like actually like legitimately infuriate me to like an unreasonable amount because like it was a history major so it's just really frustrating for me to like watch movies that are historically inaccurate because I don't think he has like a respect for like the study of history um but like this one in particular like the last duel I feel like it's his most historically accurate film it does such an incredible job of showing like the culture of like medieval France like specifically Normandy um like I never studied like the medieval period like deeply because it is not one of my areas of interest but when I was in like France a couple years ago we went to like Normandy and I learned a ton of um the medieval stuff there when we visited like Rouen Cathedral and saw the graves of like these Norman um kings and whatever so like this is a story that I've like heard before but I didn't read the book my friends that I saw it with did so we were talking about it like afterwards I do wish that it had the film had shown some of the um like historical debates surrounding it like I think Adam Driver's section could have shown like that she was like totally lying and things like that because I understand why it's such a thing why movies are like leaning into this whole me too thing but at this point it's really fucking annoying to me because the me too movement didn't fucking do anything it didn't what did it do it had a bunch of like women actors showing up at I don't know that fucking award show in black dresses there's still abusers and rapists and everywhere in Hollywood it doesn't fucking matter so it's really annoying to like twist these stories into like a me too thing because it's useless it's a stupid movement it accomplished nothing um like I did really like this movie I thought the 
parallels and the slight differences between each character, especially the male characters, work incredibly well. Um, especially Matt Damon's character, like how he is in the first section when it's like about him and how different he is when Jodie Comer's character is telling it. It's amazing. Uh, the differences between like the two rape scenes, I really picked up on that. Um, like it's good, but I think it's just too excessive in the two rape scenes. Like sexual violence is something that like I've experienced, but it's something that doesn't bother me. I can't imagine like being somebody that has been raped and seeing this. So like, no wonder it's not doing well. Like I saw this movie four days ago and I'm still sick to my stomach, but about those scenes, I don't know. I'm just like, I really liked the movie, but I have a hard, hard time liking it because the scenes in it. Yeah, I definitely get that. I think your points about the Me Too movement as a larger whole are very interesting to get into and break it down because like, I agree fully to a lot of degree. And I think you can see this with a lot of like social movements, like change is not happening, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, whatever you want to point to, like, we're not making progress. So you're just yelling into a void and then feeling good about yourselves for trying for yelling. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so saying I, know, I would, I would like right. to say that you said climate change is not happening, which is not what you meant. But <laughs> well, you don't know just my like views. You don't know my views. To be clear. Um, <laughs> the earth is flat and it's not fucking warming. Okay. Yeah, Shut up. Just completely find out. He's like, <laughs> um, I'm not going to name names, but I was in a group chat with someone, someone, let's just say recently this week. And we were talking about certain things with the Me Too movement. And I was like genuinely quite, let's say, shocked by some of the things that were being said in there. So I feel like having to the general public these capturings, and I'm not going to say the rape scene specifically. Really what I mean, actually, is when the, I guess, slight spoilers, some nuances come in with the mother character and she reveals some things and you get a wider look at kind of rape culture. I can't say that displays of emotion like this are worthless because like if that person saw this film, I get, I feel like they would not be saying some of the things they said. So I agree like on a wider stage, I don't think Last Duel is going to change the world. I don't think it's going to, you know, change anything fundamentally because even like similar with climate change, let's say, because it's, you know, the, the, the general public are not the people who really need to change similar to the me too movement like it is higher up the executive it's the system that allows it and accepts it but like i can't say the film is overall worthless in that sense even if the movement itself maybe i feel lackluster on its overall effects and fundamentally shaking the core of the world i guess that was mm -hmm. worded interestingly i guess yeah, no. Um, and I actually want to swing back around, Alina. Um, what would you have preferred for if you took out one of those scenes? Because that was kind of where I'm sitting. How would you have done it? Because I wonder if you cut away and didn't show it, would you believe her? And then if that case, would you have to do it lesser and then also take away the impact of her? Because there is you know the aspects of flirting and things like that and i'm wondering if you could uh merge those two like issues but i'm curious i about think your if opinion. you need to see a woman violently raped to that extent to feel bad for her you're a disgusting person it's that simple that makes i sense. genuinely think that there were so many points as i was watching it where like they could have cut she could she's like literally being chased into her room 
could have cut. She's pinned to the bed, could have cut. I don't need to hear Adam Driver thrusting in and out of Jodie Comer to like understand that she's going through something incredibly traumatic. Like there's so many points when it could have just been cut. You can show the rape scenes. It doesn't need to be that graphic. There's no reason for it. This reminds me of like, um, there's a scene in Taxi Driver where Robert De Niro, Travis Bickle's on, on, on the phone trying to talk to um, uh, Betsa. And, and he's like, he's, he's like trying to like, you know, put his heart into it and try to get her back after he takes her to a, to a porno um, theatre. And there's a, there's a scene in it where, where we're, we're looking directly at him and Scorsese with the camera moves, just pans right, just takes the camera with him and we go into a hallway because it's too painful to watch. I feel like as much as I, I, I might, I, I, think, I think in terms of Hollywood, in terms of this actual sequence, I think, and this is, not, this, is, this is more of a detriment to Hollywood itself, is that it's actually shot or captured in a way that thankfully doesn't put, put like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I think in one way it doesn't sort of purify it or, you know, I'm trying to get it the right word, but doesn't glamorize it or anything. Like, I still think it's very difficult to watch. I said in my review as well, where it, it for, for me personally, again, I can't speak for someone who's suffered from, from sexual assault, but for, from someone who's looking at the outside in, I think it almost, to a, to a degree, oversteps the mark. I think if you, if you cut away, like Alina said, and you hear it and don't see it, while that still might be har- harrowing for the audience to, sit, to, to sort of emotively respond from, there's not that visual depiction that gets itself into this mess. But in the other, in the other side of it, I feel like there are, there are people out there who will have to see that because otherwise I don't think the consequence is actually sort of produced. Like we, I live in a, in a, in a world where like, I know people have gone out on, on, on nights out and, and, and acted inappropriately and you try to have a conversation with them and you have to say like, what, what, what are you doing? And they don't grasp that. I think it's one of those conversations where if you don't actually show a voice or actually show something so they can see it hand in hand of how, horrific actions are I think a lot of people don't get it I, I fully appreciate what you mean Alina by if you have to show it that bad um that I think I, but I think that's that's a problem with with, with with modern Hollywood and the fact that they have absolutely no nuance whatsoever like I watched the beta yeah. test of the day with Jim Cummings and the fact that they have to consciously name a certain Hollywood producer in that to get their point across with the issues of tone don't get me wrong I think that's like the world we're living in right now I agree, I agree with you. I think I think it's handled to a degree that it, that it could have been, but even then, I think that it's it, it oversteps the mark in, into having to show it twice. I think that when she runs up the stairs and we see the difference nuance of her feet, uh, her shoes. Sorry, she she takes them off normal in one. She runs up the the the, uh, the, the stairs in a second. That's that's enough. We 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 understand the sort of the urgency. The the the. the the horror of that sequence, the, the emergence of where it's going to go. Don't follow her up those stairs. We know what's going to happen. I think audiences are far more brighter than Hollywood mm-hmm. suggests, although I'm in, I'm in two minds, and, and it'd be nice to... to uh, so to so like, I guess you know, my question cool, is... Paul, sorry. Uh, oh, no, I was, I'm curious, because we all liked the movie, uh, but is it a little unfilmable, like retroactively looking at it, because... I mean, it does exist, but, you know, it does seem like there's uh, an issue of, like, it's something that probably shouldn't be shown, but also 
it may struggle to be without it. So like, was this a, an iffy choice to make full stop if there seems to be no way to have done it correctly? I don't think this, I don't think this film morally <laughs> is trying to change like our opinions. I feel pretty certain in this call, all of us like are pretty anti-rape, pretty like anti like, uh, we're on the same wavelength of what this film is trying to say. I think there's a large population of people who, if they don't see it, can ignore it. I agree with what Alina said. I just think there's a lot of disgusting people out there. It's similar we talked about in the past on this podcast about like representations of like LGBTQ plus community and being very aware of what films are saying because audiences will take things the wrong way or take things mm -hmm. in a harmful way if you're not careful. Like, yes, I would say a logical person doesn't need to see the rape scene to have it have that impact. I think it's very logical to understand the weight and gravitas of that situation without having to see it. I think a lot of people are illogical. I think a lot of people will find that distance, not seeing it and ignore it and then not understand. I mean, the fact that there's people who still do not understand it after how many fucking years of it being prominently in the news cycle, prominently within media, prominently within, you know, if you everywhere, I just think like, yes, I agree with you, Alina, but I think there's just disgusting people out there. Like, I think it's hard to say it's necessary because like, it's not necessary for us. But I think for the people who still need, I guess, sold on the idea for lack of a better word or to understand this idea in the lack of a better words, like, I, I don't know. I think it's really hard to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point. Like we, it, I just, I don't know. I think pe audiences are really stupid and I think they will take that escape, so. If you're already a generally horrific person, you're not gonna notice the differences between the rape scene from Adam Driver's point of view versus from Jodie Comer's point of view. Fully She's agree. protesting in both. When he's in the Palace of Justice during the trial, he says, oh, well, she was doing the customary, like, I don't remember the exact line, but she's supposed to be protesting. It's customary because she can't be a whore. She's supposed to be a noble woman. It makes Adam Driver look bad if Jodie Comer is made out to be a whore. That's why she has to do the customary like protests. And then when Jodie, it's from Jodie Comer's point of view, it's worse, but there's still like the protesting. Like mm -hmm. it's really, there's, oh my God, there's subtle differences. And I, I don't think that you're going to tell a difference if you already have like raped a woman or something. Like, Oh my God. It, I went to see this in Montreal because I was visiting my friend and in Quebec, they have like a different rating system than the rest of Canada, I guess. And you can like see this movie at 13. And I was like, what the fuck? Because do you really think a teenage boy is going to tell the differences between those two rape scenes? No. Like that's for, that was so just ridiculous for me. Do you know, just to leave That's actually, I just wanted to hop in on the rating system. I find it really interesting because uh, Americans were so used to anything with sexual content is R. And then to hear that 13 can see something that like, not only is the violence pretty intense in this, um, which we can get into in a second, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's wild to me because I'm so used to Quebec anything. Quebec is a lawless land. <laughs> I, I think it's because like, there's no nudity, so it's fine. 13 year olds can totally see this. And I was like, yeah, Quebec is an insane place. Just, just I was to chime like in actually well. shook when well, I saw it on the poster. <laughs> just to chime in as well, and, and and again, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm trying to think of the worst in the world, but inadvertently to Alina's point, that sequence is very for a thirteen-year-old that in the same summer can go watch Jodie Comer in Free Guy, and that film 
sexualizes in certain ways uh, the motifs of, of the game and character doesn't really help those same audiences going to watch this without the without the strong difference in that sequence as well. I think you're, you're, you're probably correct, Alina. I think to answer Paul's, Paul's point earlier is that the writer, and I can't pronounce her last name, is Nicola Holfsener. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Holfsener. <laughs> I think me, Jack, if mispronouncing words, <laughs> you will always be better than me. So yeah. go, I'm, don't I'm, worry. I'm sure, some, I'm sure someone will be listening and, and writing that down. Um, uh, hopefully I'll get a, a mention in Paul's monthly newsletter. From Lord knows the Slack fan. chat is going to be all over you. <laughs> yeah. um, but I would just, I, I think that if Nicola, Nicola, all offense, uh, that, that's, you can keep that one in for free. Um, I think if she directed this film, that sequence would be very, very different. And perhaps um, knowing Ridley Scott and his craftsmanship, maybe that would have been the right decision to have a, a female voice um, not only write write that sequence, which uh, Paul's estimation she has done, it's quite clear that she has the uh, that into implementation in the film, just like Phoebe Waller Bridges did in, in, a, in No Time to Die. Um, I think that, that that sequence probably should have been passed down to her to handle and her handle her, her alone. Um, but I think it takes an incredible um, maturity behind the camera to do that justice to that sequence. And I'll and I'll say this: I don't think Ridley Scott as well as the cinematographer and the editor, did the best job they could have done by showcasing that sequence. Yeah, and um, I mean, Hall Center is like a very like accomplished director, but I also mm -hmm. wonder, um, as you were saying that, I was like, but also if she wrote this sequence, mm -hmm. she might've done it far more graphic than Scott. Um, to like push the point across. Um, so I mean, it's it's you know, alternate worlds. We have no clue. Um, to be fair though, Paul, just 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 to be hypothetical though, do you think that the backlash would be far less prominent with her behind the camera because of her interpretation as a woman, perhaps maybe living through that? Do you think it would have more substance? Probably, but ultimately, it still is Ridley Scott's movie, regardless oh, of if he completely. gave a sequence. Um, and then you know there might be a question of, oh, you only gave the woman the oh, cool. yeah, yeah, most, yeah. most yeah. harrowing sequence. And now if he gave, yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, there is, you know, something to be said about if he just given enti the entirety of Jodie Comer's section, uh, that area to her, and it have a more feminine feel to it versus mm -hmm. the masculine versions, um, it would have been interesting. But that's not the film that uh, is there. It's, it's yeah, a Ridley Scott through and through. Um, well, but I quick uh, just quickly was there a reaction? I because I don't remember, and I find it funny that we're bringing this back up because last time we talked about this when you were here, uh, Jack, was it what was the reaction like to like the Nightingale from Jennifer Kent? That was a female led film that featured a very, very graphic, heavily, you know, my, pers my personal opinion, or the, 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 the just the general, general. public because we were talking about like, uh. If well, I if I remember rightly, I think I think the word of mouth was because it was harrowing. It wasn't about the actual contextual conversation about Australian issues of colonialism in Australia about um, native indigenous people. Yeah. It was about that sequence. But there um, wasn't people out there being like, "Oh, it's too like graphic." Was there? Or I, there's, there's, I, don't, I think that, I think I think there's always there's always going to be people like that um, because granted, like Alina said, if you have a if, if you have things in your personal life you see cinema or actions debate on, on film very differently to how other people do. So I, I don't doubt that that would have been 
um, a, a conversation that would have been taken place. But from what I remember, I don't remember being much backlash. I think it was pretty much accepted that it was it was quite welcoming welcoming to showcase such a, a sequence from a from a female point of view. Um, but we talk about the, mm -hmm. I mean that what what is that twenty seventeen? So we're talking about the Me Too movement again. That conversation just gets lost, you know. Like it, it, it's interesting because that is a, an incredibly difficult uh, sequence to watch. I think the film in general is. Um, but it's interesting how it's so fleeting in the conversation of what we're having now. Like, if you're going to go, like, like Alina said, there's this elitist wokeism. Like, uh, I, that's probably the wrong word to say, but this elitism in Hollywood, where to go on on uh, to a to a premiere or to go to the Oscars, all dressed in black with a pin. That's not good enough. That's not mm -hmm. good enough to to have James Franco there, who everybody knew about, having been able to do that. It's not good enough to have. I don't know, like what we see now about Carrie, uh, uh, Fukunaga, the, the James Bond director, that's not good enough. That's, that's him coming out, slating the, the, the writer of HBO, uh, so True Detective on HBO, in the same week, month, that he's come out and, and, and have acted inappropriately to a member of staff. It's not good enough. So these conversations are, are, seem to be always fleeting. I don't know if that's because of the, <laughs> the idea. Do you know, I mean, you know, look at David O. Russell. He has a career and he has people yeah. working on his film who were in Bombshell, a movie about this. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, we're, we're, we're also we're also talking about the same director who are people who in this, who in this, who, who, in the medium that we are, we're actually doing now, I put, I put him as a front runner for the Academy Awards. Oh, yeah. Like, it, like there is, people are so naive and granted, yep. you know, the, 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 the conversation will be, well, we should put a microscope to everybody. N no. Don't be a dick. It's quite. I mean, it's quite simple. I mean, you, you just, would have thought people that... just don't care. It doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if David O. Russell is an abuser. We want to see his new movie. People don't give a fuck. Like, Mel Gibson is doing John it's Wick now. It's literally <laughs> yeah. just to make yourself feel good and look good, and it's bullshit. It's lying nonsense. Like it's actually bullshit. Um, that's why I just don't like all these conversations because like, it means nothing. It's just people saying shit to make them look good. And then the very next day, they're going to go see the new Roman Polanski movie. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. No one gives a fuck. It's all about I mean, seeing the next movie. You want to be a part of the conversation. I don't want to do the buzzword here because I know someone probably ticking off, but I mean, I, w I was there three years ago, two years ago for the Polanski film when it, when it, when it was given award at Venice. And I sat there with a group of people, the same age as me, all know about his history. And we sat there and they asked me, oh, um, have you got your ticket? I was like, have I got my ticket? I'm not going to go. And they, they couldn't understand. I mean, I'm talking about English, Italian, French, a group of people, European people who know his crimes, who know him as a, uh, not as a person, but, but, but are educating in, in his horrific crimes, who had no issue going to see that film at a premiere where he would, <laughs> where he would be. And I thought, I thought similar. I sat there and I thought like, Sometimes you, it, it, it's so bad, it's so barren, these conversations, that it reflects badly on you in a way where you're thinking, am I the, am I the person that was the wrong one out here who, who isn't going to go celebrate this film because of the, 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 the obscenity of its director? And as I get older, I'm just generally glad I made the right decision. I won't go watch the new David Russell film. If, if, I, if I happen to watch it one time, I'll watch it, but I won't review it. Just like the, the, the other pieces of shit out there. There's, there's so many- I'll watch it, but I won't pay money for it. Well, exactly. And I think, I, think you're, you're, yeah. I think that's fair enough as well. But we've done Fantasia, we've done Vif, right? The amount of emerging filmmakers at London as well, who you're seeing who can't get millions of dollars uh, to, to, to make a film, but, but, but a renowned paedophile 
a renowned sexual abuser like Victor Salva, and I don't mind naming these people, it's on record, um, are, are able to, I mean, Francis Ford Coppola gave money to Victor Salva, you know, to make, to make films after being prosecuted and sentenced to prison for crimes against a child. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that, that, and these same people are talking about signing books and saying, you know, we, we need a better work, workspace for, for female creatives. Well, then do it. You know, I just think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a genuinely har harrowing conversation to have, but the double standard is so present. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. People just care more about clout than things that actually matter. Like the fact that Taylor Swift is in the new David O. Russell movie and she talks about feminism and bullshit all the time, fuck off. Like, I love Taylor mm -hmm. Swift, but fuck off. That's ridiculous. And she has to know. She reads they all know. She reads Tumblr. <laughs> They all know. They, they all just don't know. give a fuck. Same thing with how like Selena Gomez did that Woody Allen movie. They don't give a fuck yeah. at all. They yeah. don't give a fuck until they're called out. Then they'll be like, oh, we care. But well, that's exactly. that, that just came up quite recently with the mayor of Easttown, um, with Kate Winslet, who who 10 years ago, maybe maybe five or six years ago, was was asked about you know making films with, I think on, on this, this Wonder Wheel in 2017. With the, you know the, the you know if you say his name three times he, he might appear so I don't want to say it out loud but you know <laughs> what you know why were you working with a director that you know you, you knew about and she said oh well you know I, I don't really take much stock in that and then when the ramp of Me Too comes in 2020 where it's it, it's starting to really start press people the wrong way um in in all good good reasons um she came out and denounced him now the fact of the matter is you knew then and you know now so what has changed realistically. It's changed because public opinion have told you to change. And I'm not, I don't mm -hmm. say that because public opinion is, is right and wrong. Um, she's only doing that because the public have sweared. She should know in her heart of how what she did was, was, was horrific. You know, I mean, again, like it's happening all the time. It, it, it's, it's, it's generally quite frightening. Like you said, the, the, the Mel Gibson thing. I mean, can you imagine being Keanu Reeves who, who alleged, I, mean, I say it's alleged because he had to come out and admit it, but you know, gives money to cancer research to, to, to donate to charity. He has like an image, you know, I think that's quite frightening to be involved in a property with someone like mm -hmm. that. But that's that's my my two cents on it. Um, so <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff in it, because uh, we have focused on one scene. Um, but I'm curious, uh, what do you guys think of Ben Affleck, who everyone seems to love in this role? And I kind of found him a little annoying personally. <laughs> Can really? I say I didn't know he's it was Ben Affleck asshole, at first? He's a huge asshole, but I loved him. Really? I'm just calling him like, blonde flick. I really hope for, it takes off. Well, so <laughs> he's blonde. It doesn't, you know, for like the first 10 minutes, I was like, he looks familiar. And then I was like, wait a minute. Also, because like, okay, I love to Ben Affleck. This is going to sound rude. I really don't mean it. because, But like, he's been a little bit bigger recently in certain roles. Like in the way back, he's a little bit bigger. Here he's really skinny. So also like, it just looked different. Wait, I was like okay. not expecting it. But Speaking of um, men's weight, like we're uh, some magazine from the 2000s. Um, I was thinking the exact same thing when they showed uh, Matt Damon shirtless. I was like, okay, was this before or after Stillwater? Because mm. Nick Damon <laughs> yeah. is not the same guy here. And I was like, I, I would assume this was shot before because you could have well, just- did, Paul, It was shot before did, and after because it was before COVID and then also they finished after COVID. So it was like- Yeah, because break. he shot House of Gucci in the middle. Different guy. In the middle of this? Matt Damon, we're talking about. No, 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 Ridley Scott. No, I know. Oh. Yeah, we're just yeah. talking about, yeah. No, no, no um, I think you're right. I think you, I think you blew up. Or, or, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Lost and Gained. Uh, yeah, no, because it was wild to watch. I was- 
in the same point that you're talking about. I was like, when in the timeline were these movies shot? Um, Can I quickly I just also, mention very quickly about the Stillwater conversation? I screamed when he kissed a guy in this, considering the conversation around Stillwater. Oh. He was like, I don't say slurs anymore. I stopped last year. He make he kissed a guy. Definitely feel like he was like Ridley. Look, the conversation's been bad. Just have me make out with some. Give me a give me a man. I got it. Yeah. Um, and yet it wasn't Ben Affleck. So what's the point? Um, yeah. It it was really interesting. Um, actually the casting of the two of them uh without them really having any good scenes together like you know this is the first time they've been in a movie together in a while and uh, i thought it was funny just how much ben affleck's character hated matt damon like every time matt damon (laughs) and them were on screen he's just rolling his eyes ben affleck was such like a 14th century frat boy in this i think it worked so well within the context of like the film i loved it I mean, I would just uh, he's like well. contributing to like the rape culture. It works so well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but go, go ahead. No, no, no sorry. I keep interrupting. I, I, sorry. Go on. I, I'll just I'll be very quick. I just think I think I, we can all agree. I think Matt Damon is the he's the out the out the the four people who are mainly in this film. I think he's probably the the least substance where he surprised me. I think his accent swears constantly, and that's with Ben Affleck in this film. As I said at the beginning, with Shakespeare in Love, which is shaky to begin with and I think he basically relies on a physical ex- um, uh, external um, performance rather than I think Adam Driver and Jodie who do really good internal to external I think Matt Damon's a bit one note I will say this what frightens me about the Ben Affleck conversation is there's going to be certain people who watch this and, and very much like certain people who said about Diana Regan last night in Soho like it's a minimal performance with, a, with a, an A-list actor are going to start doing the Academy conversation now I don't think it's good enough for that but it will be well, that conversation will be had. I think I think that conversation will die quickly because of Tinder mm-hmm. Bar, which mm-hmm. is the same. Like it, you'll have to choose one, and I think they'll just uh, do one of those situations where they move up the larger role um, and remember that he's also in this. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the other thing I'm curious uh, your guys' opinion. Did you mind the lack of French accents? Like, um, it see it really bugs. No, me. because it's Norman France. It's like a heavy British influence. They don't have really have French accents. Um, I guess that makes sense. A uh, one guy popped up at one point and had a thick French accent, and I was like, "Oh, I forgot we're in France." I literally is that Charles is the King. I one That's of the characters. Charles yeah. is more in Paris. It's Norman is very uh, like a heavy was, English influence. I thought it was one of the random characters. Um, I don't remember. Alina's not it's not like I get what you mean because it does take place in France but like Normandy at that time was very English so it doesn't matter that makes sense yeah. um but they still wouldn't have had thick British uh whatever the accent no, is it, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, they, no. they wouldn't have had French accents like that. um no it's just funny because like the there was multiple times and especially when they went to scotland i was like well scotland's mm-hmm. not that far where oh right we're in france <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, uh the, the last thing i just wanted to say is i thought like um matt damon's character in like his um section versus like jody comers was so interesting because he portrays himself to be like such a wife guy 
he's like so dedicated to her he's like so loving there's only like one or two scenes in the first act when he's like a bit of an asshole like when she when uh she tells him that she was raped he like asks if she's like lying or not and that's like the only thing but then when it changes to like the third act and it's like Jodie Comer's he's such an asshole and it's like so much worse and it's just really interesting to like see how men view themselves versus how women view them. Can I, can I ask another question just to, to get on Paul's bandwagon here? Because I, I think it's just, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you want to move on after this, but to me, I think one thing that hasn't really been spoken about with, with the release of this film is that I feel like this is a direct conscience cleaner from Affleck and Damon after the Weinstein scandal as well. I feel that's mm-hmm. primarily about like, let's make this and let's just, you know, we, we saw it. There's there's documentation that we said something we didn't say enough, um, and, and at times we didn't say anything at all. Let's write this. Let's clear our sin. I can and definitely let, see right, that. Let's let let's like Hollywood and mass audiences see this and be like, oh, they're not they're not that bad because they clearly understand what's going on. I think that's a conversation because this shouldn't just be a full stop for them to after this. I think this should be a continuation of 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 making amends to mistakes both of them to had party in. And I know I know that. I don't want to yeah. put this uh, on their conscience or something. I don't know their story. But from what I've read, they didn't do enough. And I think that, that will never, that, that's a hole never to be fixed. So this has to be a constant conversation. Um, and I don't always think that doing it through the medium of film is the best avenue. And the same breath, I think every time Matt Damon in the publicity tour has to open his mouth, there's a fucking really bad, um, uh, <laughs> that's a really bad output. So I can understand there's a lot of work to do. I mean, if you're coming out and you're saying that my daughter told me not to say a certain uh, 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 slur, um, I would shut your fucking mouth and just just do that, an internal thing, and then teach uh, to others how you want to be uh, to be presented in the world. I think mm-hmm. it's a dangerous thing for him to do. I'm a bit surprised Actually, I do... if that's the case that Ben didn't invite his brother to join, because you feel like that'd just be a good group to bring in. Um, exactly. Mm. Yeah, to see them yeah. again, like doing a writing role is interesting and I do hope that continues I hope like the fact that this isn't doing financially well I I would like to see them try again um and maybe go a little smaller uh and actually to your point Jack I don't see a hundred million dollars on this I think it looks fine Mm. but I've seen far cheaper movies that I'm like yeah there's a couple shots where I was like yeah this just looks like you know game of thrones and that didn't cost a hundred million dollars uh you know an (laughs) an episode um and it's really interesting especially the final battle which i do think looks good um there's one point where a horse dies and then the horse definitely like looks like a like early 2000s horse Uh, (laughs) it's like i was like huh guys where is this money um because i think you could have cut about half this budget and the average audience would not have noticed um it also may have been shorter uh which is was one of my biggest problems there was a definite section during adam drivers where i was like uh, okay i'm good Do you know uh, <laughs> just to go on about the, the goodwill hunting thing to, to relate to this conversation have you ever heard the story about when they pitched it to miramax um, ben Affleck, I think, has told this story on, on British television where he says that um, no one would read the, the script all the way through. So halfway through, they had a sex scene of both characters giving each other a blowjob. And um, only, one, only one producer uh, asked them at the end of the, uh, end of the, the, uh, the meeting, why did they both have that, 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 that sequence? And it's Harvey Weinstein. Um, and it came out that that was a, 
uh, a tactic that uh, Appy Weinstein had told them to say that he was a observing uh, the screenplay and he was very good at his job and he was very much um, someone who honed in on someone's craft and read it to the extent that, that, that no other producer did. All these tactics that he did always were conscious. So it's interesting to, like, to know like, where we, this is coming from and where this era is from, is that even the people who you think of a nice story where, oh, like, you know, you got, you got the film made, like he did it consciously with a bias of trying to project that he was, he was something that no one else was. I mean, Paul, you'll know the stories about what he did about the, uh, the DVD screeners in the early 2000s about, uh, was it, I think Shakespeare Love as well, where nobody had a rule in set where you could produce screeners to people and he just sent it to everybody. And yeah, it ends up winning the Academy Award, you know. And before we go any further, let's hear a word about the sponsor for today's episode. Okay, and next up, A24 will not leave us alone. By the way, FYI, before we get into this, this might be the most like argue like biggest argument in Clappercast history. We have Lamb. It's you know, I, I I'm gonna save my opinions, I guess. Paul, go for it, because I don't even know what to say. It's this is gonna suck. Okay, so um I had heard from Carson that Lamb was terrible. And then I heard from Alina that it was good. And then I heard from one of my friends that it was really bad. Um, But the thing that was very interesting was all of my friends wrote me and said either you will love it or you will hate it. But like guessing how my opinion would be. Um, So I went in really expecting to hate it. Chris Chris and I actually saw it together. and it starts and I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to hate this, but I'm, I'm liking it right now. And then the next scene happened and then the next scene happened. And then we get to the ending and I was like, oh, I, I really liked this. Uh, <laughs> basically, the story is like a kind of like Grimm's fairy tale um, done in a new way. Uh, it's Numi Rapachi um, is a mother who had a miscarriage and there is a mysterious lamb that's born in her um whatever lamb group uh <laughs> her herd, herd. And she, no i was trying to think of the Idiot. barn no i was trying to think of it barn. was like a if it was a barn or if it was something different um it's a barn <laughs> so i wasn't sure um and then uh, as one of her herd, and she takes it on and starts treating it like a baby. Um, and some mystical stuff happens, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, uh, I, I love this movie. Uh, and I do get why people would dislike it. But I have noticed that I am kind of a sucker for this Icelandic slow horror Um, There was another movie that I mentioned earlier this year called Rift, which had the same vibe to me of like this slow sadness um, that just permeates the entire movie, but also feeling like uncomfortable and a little scary. Um, So yeah, I'll I'll pass it on. Alina, I know you liked it too. Yeah, I fucking loved Lamb. I also wasn't expecting to like it because Carson saw it for all of us. So I like... Um, it was like Canadian Thanksgiving week and I was seeing my cousins and I was like, okay, I can see lamb because it's not playing at like my local theater. So I convinced them to like, come with me to see it. And I was like, it's about a cute little lamb. 
and I didn't tell them like anything else about it I didn't even tell them it was in Icelandic and they were like god damn it you're making me read subtitles for two hours but like um they all really liked it as well I loved it I feel like this was like a movie that was like made for me I really love Icelandic cinema I haven't seen very much but everything I've seen from Iceland has been like really fucking cool and like Lamb is no exception I feel like it's such a good story and like commentary on like motherhood and parenthood and eating animals and who gets to be a mother that like it just worked so fucking well for me like even the slow pacing I didn't feel it at all I was at the edge of my seat the like pretty much the entire movie because I just like was ready for what was going to happen next I just like I didn't want it to be over I want a lamb too like I had a great fucking time with it I have a new name for my webkins lamb because I've been stuck on a name her name's Ada now the movie fucking rocks and Carson's wrong wildly incorrect you're an idiot yeah I have to I have to step in here and and just take up arms against Carson on this one because (laughs) look I'm a Paddington stan like I love Paddington so when that little lamb is in his little blue peacoat and like holding her hand walking I the movie I was I was over it could have ended right there I was sold I was so into it it was great what what a cute little lamb and then i mean there's a shot towards the end an all-timer shot the reveal when i turned to paul and i was like four stars four stars for this movie immediately because i i I really did like it i liked the pace i liked the this this sense of like they were in the middle of nowhere like obviously this very strange thing happened there's a little bit of sense of foreboding to it because i mean the first half of the movie i was like who fucked the lamb that was really what this came down i was like who fucked that sheep like is it him like, how did this little sheep baby get born? And then, you know, it becomes less about how the sheep baby came to be and more about how the little sheep baby is, you know, being so sweet and cute and adorable and, you know, just the nurturing little baby. Um, and there's definitely some darker elements that are peppered throughout that really kept me really into this. And I thought that, like, I don't know, it was just one of those movies where I saw the trailer and the trailer was uh, one of those. I was like, how is this movie real? Like, I had no idea what to expect. I really didn't know what the hell this movie was about. I'm not even going to say that the movie really lived up to whatever I believed happened in the trailer, but I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta take up hooves against you on this one because lamb was, I'm all in. Feeling a little ganged up on like a lamb sent to slaughter. One could say, um, look, I don't hate this film. It's not, it's not a Titan, whatever. It's not Titan all over again. No, I will be heard. I will be heard. Thank you, Alina for interrupting. Look, I don't think it's complete trash. I think it starts some good conversations. I like when they're all together getting drunk, all the adults, because that's funny. And the lamb is adorable. Like there's no denying the lamb is fucking cute. But I think it undercuts itself at every possible turn because this film starts a lot of interesting conversations, but it doesn't work. Number one, you're supposed to be like, oh, it's a bad choice. Like look how desperate they are after a tragedy that slowly revealed that they bring this lamb and they raise it as their own. It is seen as a bad thing. The sheep wants it. They kill the mom sheep, which yes, is a you know, fuck, fucked off move. But like it is seen as a bad thing that they take in this lamb baby. However, it is not a lamb and it would have frozen to death. So they had to take it in or else the thing would have died anyway. So necessity already are super doesn't work. Warm. It would not have frozen to death. It had it's human skin. It had human sheep. skin. So let's throw a child. Let's take a human child. Sheep. Let's take a human child. Let's throw it in a barn. Do you know how warm barns are? Let's throw the baby child into the Iceland wilderness. That is not correct. Let's, if you really As like an, wrong, someone who comes from an agriculture farming background, farms are, you, and barns are very warm I, and you're Let's wrong. throw the human child out there and let's see what happens. I, Maybe I, do, I am wrong. They're fucking sheep. I, <laughs> I do it like has a human body. 
Anyway, oh? I do like no. Okay, let me continue. So I do like one then, second. Okay, uh, I do like that Alina keeps popping in and being like, as a expert in, <laughs> and the fact that she didn't see Halloween Kills, she would have been like, as an expert in murder and murdering, <laughs> <laughs> as someone who stabbed people, that one is just not realistic. Anyway, as someone who so, has gouged out eyes, <laughs> I'm just saying that story you're doesn't wrong. work. No, okay, let's throw a human child into the fucking mud and let's see if it survives. Then we'll decide, I guess. Then what mud? It's story. in a barn. Oh my fucking god. Okay, next. <laughs> next. next. The story is like, well, maybe we're supposed to feel like it's a story about like how people view animals differently than us, other species. There's a lot of longing shots on how this lamb is brought in, but there's this picture in the house of all these sheep getting wrangled. And it's like, oh, maybe this is a commentary on like, it's wrong that we view animals as lesser than us, but also it's a fucking human child with a lamb face. So that doesn't really fully work. And then you also have nature become the antagonist at the end where out of fucking nowhere, this horribly CGI fucking creature comes and shoots the guy. Oh. So that wasn't good. Then, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was. I mean, that was cinema. what part. What that part of that? Yeah. What part of that is a joke? It comes out of nowhere and it's badly CGI. That's what I said. That's what it is. It doesn't it's, come out of nowhere. It's. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Okay. No, <laughs> I will it's say introduced. This. There have been hints to it. <laughs> sure, there's been hints to it, but out of nowhere in the context the of that scene. I will say, at least it goes somewhere. That's my biggest issue with horror is how many films like, oh, it's a dream sequence, or they'll hint that there's something darker and there's never something. At least there's a monster in this. I will say, like, good on the movie for that. I just think it was in that scene, it came out of, like I did not know we were at the final ten minutes of that film, and then it just randomly hit out of nowhere. So I think it's a movie of good ideas. I think it has a lot of interesting starts, good conversations. I just think it undercuts itself completely. And another issue is simply like <laughs> the lamb does not show fucking emotion. I'm sorry, it's cute, yes, but there's so does. many scenes where it goes to the <laughs> close up of just the fucking lamb's face, and you're supposed to get an emotional reaction from it, but it's just a sheep. And I'm like, you look terrified. I don't know if you're terrified. I don't know if you're happy. I don't know what emotion this is because it's just a lamb and it's cute, but it does not like re you cannot register what emotions it's supposed to have. So I think it's a fine film. I don't hate it. I really do not hate it as much as like Titan, which I thought was like utter garbage. And I thought it was embarrassing to like that film. I wouldn't say it's embarrassing like this <laughs> film. I don't think, I don't, like, don't respect you all less as humans like someone if you like Titan, but I don't think it's good either. So I think you have shit opinions on film, but like not as a person. <laughs> I would just like to say that Carson claims he didn't hate this, but He's the one who's kept bringing up lamb throughout our group. Oh, okay. Week. Who Paul during this call, who up? during this call DM'd us something about lamb? Okay. Lying. <laughs> Liars. Listen, and listen, Character assassination because you cannot defend the film. Lamb, you text him personally and say in all caps, Alina is insane when Paul likes the movie too. So the so lies. Fuck off. So what we're hearing is that because you cannot defend the film and you're so insecure in your opinions, you had to lie about my character on a podcast publicly. I can perfectly, well, Paul's lying about you then. Let's post I read the DMs. What I read. Also, <laughs> I, I have said nothing. I can defend the film. It's an amazing movie. Look, uh, Alina, like... I, make, look, if you like, look, I get that you like it. You're like from a farm. I'm not shocked. I'm just saying like, it's not <laughs> good. from a farm. She lives uh, on a farm. She just got new cows. No. Uh, <laughs> she does have new cows. Uh, no, but like, I think that a lot of this works in terms of like a fable in terms of like, you know, being like sort of a Greek tragedy kind of thing. 
and using that kind of perspective, I think really changes like the feeling, even Carson, to your point, uh, some things about like, this comes out of left field, but I feel like that happens in a lot of these, like, you know, uh, you know, even things like Oedipus and things like that, that set up, like, there is a debt to be paid karmically. Um, I think that all of it kind of works surprisingly well. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the killing of the, um, the mother, uh, sheep and, you know, I think that at that point, you know, this story's doomed. There's no redemption for these characters because she has done the worst possible thing, which is taking away, you know, the child. And then when nature takes it back, she brutalizes it in a way that she has to deal with eventually. And she does. The ending is basically her having you know, repercussions for her actions, um, which I But also find that's like- in an effort to, pr- you can justify it as an attempt to protect the baby that can't survive outside, but this sheep keeps but, but hanging that's, outside. That's, but, but that's not- I would kill like, the sheep. That's Adam's like, mother. That's but, her mother. The whole thing is who gets to be the mother in this scenario. I would prefer the one that would keep it alive. I'd prefer the one that doesn't kill it personally. But I, but I think that they showed when she escapes with- uh, Ada during um, the middle of the night um, and Ada's fine completely naked out in the middle of nowhere um, I think it's supposed to prove like she would have been fine um, and probably and Ada's always she's always trying to leave the house and go back outside she well, doesn't want to be children. in there like I worked at a so, daycare yeah, they she wants run to after be with parents. her actual mother yeah okay maybe i shouldn't work did you shoot the actual mother carson <laughs> if it you're like stay kidnap- in here and their parents are like we're picking him up and you're like if they try to kill the kid and then throw it outside in iceland i probably would be like yeah i need to do something <laughs> to be clear also i forgot to mention the lead actress is incredible like i do not want to take any shade off her it actually pissed me off because she's so good in this like movie that's not doesn't do like doesn't give her enough to work with she is incredible i'll say that Yumi Rapachi is amazing. He's great. Um, I actually like to, I thought that, um, like, Paul, you're saying kind of like the the fable and the thing of motherhood and, like, the fact that she took her, you know, Ada's actual mother away. I kind of thought it was really interesting, too, towards the end that because she kind of breaks the family unit by flirting with the dad's brother and then she's not there for this big moment that that's kind of like, it's almost like this karmic, like, oh, well, you know, you weren't the best mother maybe because here's this family unit and you kind of broke away from it. Now something happened. I think that she feels that guilt at the end. I like that. I mean, I was very into seeing this idea of this like little family in the middle of nowhere and how they try to come together with this. You know, you would, you would, of course you'd accept this thing because nobody would be able to tell you that's not your kid or that's not your child. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and it is interesting, like, you know, uh, to your point, Carson, talking about like, you know, the lamb doesn't emote and things, but I do the same with, uh, you know, my dog. I'm sure Chris, you do the same and Alina with your cat. Like uh, when you sit and see like your pet and you're like, yeah, no, that's a, it's got a whole personality just by staring. Um, and maybe oh, yeah. that's ultimately what it is, is you hate animals, Carson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I mean, I will say, though, I will raise him on the emoting. Like, I'm sorry, the end when the little baby lamb has her 
human hand being dragged by her real father and she's laying on on her her adopted father with her little lamb hand like and she had the same exact facial reaction as she did for any other scene in the film she cries i could really (laughs) see into ada's soul spoiler alert once we get to tammy the t-rex you're you must be crying to the funeral scene because if that (laughs) cries you really are the same emotion i would say you know throw some tears on it sure I just wanted to oh. say, going back to Ada's real father, like the ram human thing, I thought that was such an incredible like folklore thing that is like totally made up. Like the director just made it up. I checked afterwards because I was convinced that it was like a real thing from Iceland because it fits so well within the context of the story. And like, it's so interesting because it can be interpreted in so many different ways. Like the Ram father could be like the devil or karma or like Pan. There's just so many, there's so many layers and details to this film that it just works so fucking nicely as like a man versus nature story. See, that's what, that's why I'm mad though. Cause I like that. I love stories like that. I love folklore like that. I like so many concepts in the film. It just literally undercuts it specifically because I do not know what else the parents would do. I feel like they're justified in every action they take. If like, let's say the sheep didn't care about uh, the lamb baby and the lamb baby just like kept being fascinated by the sheep and wanting to go with them completely on their own. So then she like murders all the sheep, let's say. Then that's an action where it's like, okay, that was not justifiable. I would have an issue with that. Ultimately, she's just trying to protect her kid. That's what it reads as. And I get like, it's supposed it's to be desperation. But it's okay. Literally this but, film lives and die with the fact that I think it would die without them. That's like, but, okay. It, that's but, my opinion. Maybe that's me, but like when you take it well, from that Carson, angle, it is but what it then is. Carson, how does her dad exist then? How did her dad survive? Exactly. Ma'am, do you do you think the <laughs> fucking huge sheep monster, the huge ram monster, is equivalent to the baby? I mean, at one point it was, was a baby. But the humans have no context ages? of that. The humans don't know that. So why would they expect that? Logically, if you don't know that, logically, all they know is that this lamb birthed this thing that is half human, half lamb. They don't have that context. So then I feel like they're justified But why do they to have to this. remove Ada from the entire thing? Ada doesn't have to just live in the barn. They never let her go and see the sheep. They always keep her away from her actual mother. It's disgusting. It's the exact same thing in real life of people like stealing baby cows from their mothers. That's what it's but supposed it's not, to be. Because that's not, not her mother. It's not. How it doesn't matter. Mother. That's not her mother. It's about motherhood and who gets to be a mother. I feel like if this happened in real life, you would not just let this baby go like live with a sheep. I'm sorry. I don't. So I, I'm saying. I'm saying. It's like I understand why they took her. Why do they keep her from visiting the rest of the sheep? Why are they trying to turn her human? She's not. Well, she is happy. Like, that's Fair her enough. family. Yeah. That's her family too. Why can't she have both? Yeah. Maybe then they wouldn't have gotten <laughs> slaughtered by the ram in the end. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but that'd be like taking uh, Paddington away from Aunt Lucy and not letting yeah. him visit Aunt Lucy. <laughs> exactly. Just to bring yeah. us back to Paddington. <laughs> Just <laughs> <laughs> I'm contractually yeah, like, obligated to do that. <laughs> Just shooting Aunt Lucy instead of giving her a little tour of London. Right. <laughs> like, Thank you for this little Peruvian bear. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. The mother sheep did nothing wrong. She was murdered in cold blood for no reason. Cold All blood. she wanted she's, was her fucking baby back. She was going to inadvertently also, kill her child. So. She's also a amazing actress. <laughs> that All she, the animals were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The dog the too. Cat. 
the cat. Yeah, oh my god, the cat. Amazing. I don't understand. Really incredible. There are some parts in this movie that I don't understand how they they did it. A lot with Ada interacting with the animals and interacting with the world around her. Um, When you watch something like Paddington, he does feel real, but it's a lot more expensive. And he doesn't really have interactions with animals. In this, it's like... There's he rides so a much... dog at one point, just so. That's true. In case you but... forget that seminal moment from Paddington 2. <laughs> oh, I forgot about Paddington 2. Um, I haven't seen that since, uh, I think it came out in theaters. It's a cool uh, I, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I should have it's rewatched so good. this. Um, but yeah, um, there's so many interactions, especially there's one point where Ada like picks up the cat and I was like, I don't understand how this happened. I guess they had a little child or something and then superimposed Ada in after or something. I could not figure it out. Um, but, but yeah, I think it. I think it's really fun. Um, I'm curious that they're discussing a lamb too. Um, and I'm excited for it to beat Flea for uh, best international film. <laughs> I also just want to say about like the dog and the cat in this movie I think the inclusion of them is genius because it shows like how differently people treat animals because like the dog and a cat are treated so much nicer and like Ada of course than the rest of the sheep like it's amazing chef's kiss would we be opposed if she was just full lamb because I think that's how the film would have worked for me is if it was just like a full lamb I think um, the human yes. part really hurt it for me no, see, I think it has to be because um, then it's just the thing is you have to understand to your their point, desperation Carson. though because they're desperate. That shows like wow, you're pathetically desperate to where you're willing to take in a fucking animal and treat it like it's your child. Like that, right? Shows but that's a that's a different point so much deeper. But that's a different. Yeah, this is like story. an entirely different story. Yeah, because I feel like this uh, is like a Jesus in the manger thing where it's like, oh, here's this miracle that was bestowed upon ooh, good, us. But I don't think they good, knew uh, that some ram was sneaking into their barn and fucking their sheep. Like, I think yeah. this was just like one of those like, look, look, we've been given this miracle because of what we lost. And I think that's why she's so protective of it. That's why she's so sure. kind of shutting them off from the world of, of you know, when the brother comes there, even she's she's nervous about showing it off. I feel yeah, like that justifies them, and I don't think they're characters that are supposed to be justified, though. You're supposed to like, not look at them as justified like individuals. No, I think you're There's... supposed to be as conflicted as they are, but exactly. more on the side of her husband than you are. I mean, I think there's that whole point where um, the brother goes to shoot Ava, uh, Ada, and um, like that's the moment that you're like, okay, uh, to your point, Carson, like this is a you know, thing against humanity and animal nature. And if I just shoot it, it'll, you know, this'll be over. But he can't bring himself to, which is the same gun that kills her mother and eventually kills her father. It's a very like, you know, interesting thing that's constantly used that gun. But um, I think that that's supposed to be your moment where you're like, okay, I am now uh, letting go of any like notions about this not being both a child and a lamb um, is that Mm -hmm. moment. Where, you know, even if you don't feel like that up to that point, it's the movie saying like, yes, this is a mixed creature and we have to treat it as such. Um, but yeah, I mean. So do you guys I view the Ram at the end as being the villain? No. Specifically, no. let's say towards the father, because the father didn't kill the mother. The No, um, but, but like wife did. Karmic, karmically, the mo- human mother killing the lamb mm-hmm. mother and the ram father killing 
the human father, I think is just like symbolism. You know, there's sometimes in movies and things where, uh, you know, <laughs> I will allow like a suspension of disbelief in terms of like uh, plot. It's not even a plot hole, just uh, symbolism and things that it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's fine because that's what it's trying to say is like, she did this. So nature had to come back and take something back, you know? Yeah, well, we were talking nature. earlier about- <laughs> Yeah, well, you were talking earlier about how, like, climate change doesn't exist, um, (laughs) just so everyone knows that Carson did say that out loud. (laughs) And, um, you know, uh, eventually when you're dying and, you know, the, you know, whatever, I guess all of San Diego is covered in water and you're like, "Mm, I guess climate change is real. Um, then like, that'll be your moment. I said uh, it, I didn't say it was not real. (laughs) You said climate change is not happening. (laughs) I said, no, I said the fixing of climate change is not happening, which I agree with. (laughs) That's not the words Um, you said, but. (laughs) Oh, I went to speech therapy, Paul, and you're making fun of me. And this is offensive. (laughs) Cancel. Hashtag Paul is over party. Let's get it trending, everyone. I just wanted to say like, that's what Carson said about, um, like, if it would have worked better if Ada was like a full lamb it wouldn't have because like there's that scene before like Ada is born when like they're taking care like they're helping the sheep like the ewes give birth and like there's just regular lambs and they're like cropping their ears and like sticking earrings in them like branding them they don't give a fuck about any of those lamb babies it's product to them not actual babies it it has to be half human so they're also them to care about one just write it no it's not what happens like farmers don't view their animals as like animals it's product but that's the point is that they do though because they're (laughs) desperate because they lost their child it's like in yeah so why no no one else why would it be like why would it be ada if it's just a regular lamb when they had like another lamb born the week before it doesn't fucking matter they're not it's not a right it to matter it's a a fucking half sheep half human what do you mean it doesn't make (laughs) sense it's a fictional film write it to (laughs) i'm excited for carson to go through all these context of animal agriculture it doesn't make sense for it to be an actual lamb i'm excited for carson to go through all these uh famous classic movies and go i just don't understand why Uh, and just fixing his own endings for everything that he doesn't like anymore. Just I make understand. it full lamb. It doesn't hurt <laughs> anything. It fixes anything. It makes it stronger. I would be here for this movie it if it was doesn't full lamb. because then it takes away from like the animal agriculture message of the film. But I also I'd argue um, it makes it stronger because you're I, you're making a full lamb. You get to know the emotions of that full lamb. It shows like it's just like all the others. But this one you specifically chose to care about, and you chose not to care about those just simply for like almost no reason. I would say that see, makes the uh, argument so much stronger because um, there's a justification uh, of it. Why this one is special? You chose this, and it's just like with certain species, we chose to make cats special over lambs or over sheep or whatever. Like I would argue that makes it so much stronger. Well, I mean, I think this is like um, similar to uh, the movie I was trying to think of, and I've been trying to think for a while that gave me the same feeling as this um, is actually Chinatown um, in that there's like things are happening and then ultimately things don't work out how you wanted or expected them to, but it's an inevitability to it where you're like, yeah, that's that's kind of what had to happen, isn't it? Like, and you're just, uh, you know, a little frustrated that like, 
oh, if these characters had changed a couple of their, to your point, Carson, you're talking about like kind of what I go through, but like in a way that I particularly like is going, oh, if this character had just changed one little thing, then like all of the things that happened may have been avoided. You know, uh, Chris, what you mentioned, if she hadn't, you know, um, flirted with the brother and had been very strong about it, maybe she wouldn't have like had to make him leave in the middle of the night. Um, and left the family alone. There's so many things where you're like, if only, if only, but like, ultimately you're like, yeah, that's what had to happen. Um, which is exactly how I feel in Chinatown. Um, when you get to that ending, um, spoilers for Chinatown, I guess, but not really. I love that you connected that to Chinatown. Cause when you started talking about a movie that remind you, I thought you're going to like splice, which I don't know. If, I don't <laughs> that. It's like yeah. that terrible B movie where, you know, they like kind of combine like DNA, like an animal and a person. And I, I did not think you were going to Chinatown. Chinatown? Yeah, no, one. I was thinking more thematically than like actual. Uh... Also, it is weird that uh, Numi Rapachi does have like a whole career of like um, weird spliced things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, between this and uh, Prometheus and Rupture and all these films where she's dealing with some weird creature that's half human. <laughs> I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one, but I want everyone to write an email and say which side you're on because <laughs> I'm feeling I'm right and y'all are wrong, but we'll see. You're just going to get like a million team aid. <laughs> yep. And I'm not, I'm going to be, when you all ask like, oh, did we get any emails? I'm going to say, nope, we got none. <sighs> While we're all wearing our A24 Ada <laughs> sweatshirts. <laughs> Those are cute. I'll give you that too. They're, they're really cute. Um, cool. Okay, Paul, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about the horror for the week, because this is your series. We're nearing the end, crazy to say, but introduce us to what films you chose this week. Cool. So, yeah, um, I've been, like, choosing movies that I thought had some really great um, qualities to them as, like, the horror genre. And, um, you know, uh, next week we're really going to talk about, like, what I think are, like, really great horror films as well. But uh, this week I wanted to dial it back a little bit after doing the the violence and things like that and talk about just some like camp classics. So uh, the two we're talking about are uh, Tammy and the T-Rex and Sleepaway Camp. Um, and we're going to try to keep it pretty spoiler light, especially on Sleepaway Camp. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but yeah, let's start with uh, Tammy and the T-Rex. I'm sorry, don't you mean Tanny and the Teenage T-Rex? <laughs> yes. Um, so one of the things that's very interesting about this movie is uh, it was created because the director met someone who had a robotic T-Rex laying around and it was going to Dallas for a um, to go to a museum and he said, you have a month to shoot a movie. And then they came up with a script and shot it within the month. Um, and it 100% feels like something where uh, it's just flying by the seat of its pants. Uh, to Chris's point, the title of the movie is wrong. It names the wrong character. It's Tanny, not Tammy. And it's Paul Walker in one of his first, maybe his first role, and Denise Richards in one of her first roles. Both are like 17 or 18 when this was shot. And it's just a wild film. Carson, I think you really enjoyed this. <laughs> 
Oh, I loved it. I like this is one of like genuinely my favorite comedies of all time. It's iconic. Every single line. And a lot of people are like, I think really reduce this film down to like, oh, it's just so dumb. But like it is so clever with some of the lines in here. And it's so funny in every moment of the insanity. And then you get like weirdly okay LGBT representation for the time. And just like all around, I was just like, this is fantastic. The visuals are fun. Like, yes, it's stupid. But it's so well, like, so smart in how it uses its stupidity that it almost transcends being stupid and just becomes smart. Like, I genuinely love this. Like, I could see myself rewatching this a shit ton of times. And just, I mean, I really, like, cannot say how much I like this film. <laughs> yeah, I did not know what I was getting into when I watched this. Uh, and then it begins with Paul Walker in a crop top and a very very young denise richards and i'm right i mean he can pull it off that's the thing and then but then but then he's gone <laughs> five minutes into it paul walker probably your most marketable good looking uh charismatic actor is gone and now he's in the, we get his brain we do get his brain which is great i mean i <laughs> it was funny i i think at first it was it felt like one of those movies that like in high school like your friends would make and you sit down to watch it, and you you, you have very limited budget, you no budget usually. You're just using things around you as costumes and props, and it's like, oh, hey, look, here's this animatronic T-Rex down at the, you know, the uh, mini golf place. Let's, you know, film a couple scenes of it. But as I'm watching it, I was charmed by it, and it's funny, and it's, it's entertaining. I mean, I, I cannot say anything else for it other than the fact that I was completely entertained the entire time. It ends with a Tales from the Crypt-like uh, stinger, which is, I thought, a funny little twist ending there. Um, I, you know, look, and that girl can ride. Denise Richards on that that dinosaur that is emoting, <laughs> that is choosing its bodies. I mean, it has like this dark humor to it. You know, there's a point when uh, they're trying to show off to, to Paul Walker as a dinosaur now, the different bodies that they could maybe somehow figure out how to surgically uh, put his brain into. Um, and it's it's funny. It's dark. Like here they are with these cadavers that they're holding up, trying to figure out. And Paul Walker with his little dinosaur hands is pointing down, you know, downvoting because they're too short or he doesn't think they're handsome enough. Um, I listen based on the the title, the the actual title, I guess that IMDb agrees on, which is Tammy the T Rex. I don't know what I thought I was getting out of this. I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan, so I was like, dinosaur. All right, you kind of sold me there. I I was into it. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I had fun with it. It was really stupid, but I just had, this is like a movie that you can't like help but not have a good time with it. Like Paul Walker in a crop top. I was like fucking nice. I was disappointed when he was gone for like the rest of the movie because I was like, it didn't get enough Paul Walker in the crop top, but you know, it's fine. Um, Yeah, there's just so many funny scenes throughout this. Like I watched it last night and every time like there was like a funny line that happened, I had to like pause and then like say it into my phone and like send it to our group chat because like the one-liners are just so good. The morgue scene, so good. Like everything about this is just like magically stupid in the best way possible. Like it's amazing. Yeah, I remember um, I do like terrible movie Tuesdays with my friends and this was one of them we put on. And I remember that, you know, most of the time it's not that bad a movie and we're just like making fun of it for, you know, the hell of it. But as soon as Paul Walker pulls out uh, this rose and just starts gnawing on it, I was like, oh, this movie's insane. <laughs> like, it's just, it really does like, oh, sure. That's probably the funniest thing to do. Let's do that. And it consistently does that in a really like 
wild way. Um, you know, it's it was interesting having all three of you watch it and then getting text and every single one of you picking a different moment that is equally funny. Um, and just like, you know, that's like the moment that was like, oh, that's really good. Um, and I think it is surprising that it hasn't gotten a resurgence as like a great bad movie. Um, I think it is hard to say because it's one of those movies, um, you know, to your point, Carson, it is a great comedy and, you know, the best kind of, uh, so bad it's good movies are ones where you're like, was that intentionally supposed to be funny or was that like accidentally just very funny? Um, something like cats, even things like that, um, where you don't know. And I think this movie really does that line well, um, and also just like the costuming is similar to like clueless to me and how insane some of the like 90s outfits are it's just quintessential of that era um especially denise richard's funeral outfit which is like a red dress with like crosses hanging all over it um it's so good And the dinosaur tears at that funeral. I mean, the leaky <laughs> tears. We want to talk about like emoting. I mean, that was, you know, the, for it an animatronic dinosaur. Yeah, powerful, powerful. Art. Someone say great. And then they open the coffin and it's a like 20 year old rotted corpse and it's been two days. <laughs> Those poor mice though. Cause like they try to cling onto her dress and she literally tries to shake them off the whole your life traumatic for them i just know it oh yeah well and it's so funny like you know michael's introduced as this like very nice sensitive guy and as soon as his body is putting in put in the brain not of a dinosaur even in the version of this story it is a robot dinosaur um the second he's put in he's like oh yeah i'm just gonna go murdering and just like the amount of deaths in this all by michael is wild <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie literally grabs you by the balls when it begins. I mean, that is a, an entire sequence, which I, I, oh, I could God, not believe. Oh, God, I forgot about like, that. The, bu the bully shows up with his gang, and, and, you know, they punch each other a little bit, but then it turns into literally a testicular standoff where the cops have to show up, and they're, like, shocked. Oh, yeah, this is, a, this is a big deal. It's just one of those, like, what is this movie? But, like, it's it's charming in how, like, kind of silly and almost innocent it is until yeah michael starts like really ripping people up <laughs> yeah and the original version of this movie uh they edited down to be pg-13 and um cut out a lot of the jokes apparently and a lot of the violence and i can't imagine this movie without all of that insanity like it would probably be fun but i do think it would air on the side of a little too 90s corny i think that the violence is what makes this like oh okay uh, really tempers some of the uh, stupidity of it all. I think my favorite part was when they were playing charades. Like the T-Rex is trying to like tell, explain to Tammy that like he's actually Michael. That was amazing. I cannot say how much I adore the scene where she's riding Michael and it's just like, she looks so casual, just like sitting there on this dinosaur. And then it cuts <laughs> to the shot and you see all the smoke because there's a wildfire. And it just like, yeah, that was cinema, wasn't it? We got there. That's so good. Well, cool. Any last thoughts? All right. 
and then the other one we'll talk about is Sleepaway Camp. Um, this is a very contentious movie. Um, uh, in its current um uh, current conversations. Uh, what's interesting is I always forget about that aspect of this movie because there are so many lines and uh, the deaths and everything in this are what I always think of. Um, specifically, it's basically a um, Friday the 13th ripoff with um, a couple twists. But um, the writing in this, in the same way with Tammy and the T-Rex, I am never sure if this is supposed to be funny or not. Um, there's a character named Judy and she'll say lines that are so funny, but I feel like they're supposed to be biting. Uh, one of the most famous ones is she's a real carpenter's dream, flat as a board and in need of a screw, um, which is just absolutely wild. But um, I'm curious what you guys thought about this movie uh, outside of the, the ending, which is, you know, pretty controversial. Well, maybe we should clarify. So Clappercast is for diversity, right? And that's like kind of the main gist is that we're all diverse individuals giving our opinions on film. Uh, we talked about, not to get into spoilers, but we are going to have a link to a better conversation about the ending in the description below if you do want to dive into it with people who I would say just not getting spoilers, probably are more qualified to actually give their experiences and thoughts on the ending. So that's like why we're not talking about the ending. I think that's fair enough to say. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. fair. Other than that, this movie's boring, but that's fine. <laughs> this movie is fantastic. You're so wrong. There are good lines. I feel like, like I should have watched this one before I watched the T-Rex one because like it just did not hit the same. But like it's still fun. I wouldn't call it boring. Yeah, I, I'm 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 kind of with them on this one too. Uh I I so I've worked at a summer camp for the last 15 years. Uh, so I, you know, Friday the 13th to Parent Trap to Wet Hot American Summer, I've seen every iteration of a summer camp. And I will say this one actually fairly accurate um, in terms of just like how it's portrayed and how it looks. I thought, so I was kind of into it when it started. Um, I, I did know the ending going into it. It was just one of those things that I always, I've always heard associated with Sleepaway Camp. So I, I knew what to expect there. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't know what I thought about the story here. I mean, there's just so much happening. Also, when it ends, it just kind of ends. You don't really get that much from it. It's it's a little slow. It, it takes its time. It's really working on its own pace here. Um, and I mean, it. Uh, we don't have to discuss the ending, but I mean, there are some weird aspects of this. That the movie starts off with uh, pedophilia, which is a, mm -hmm. a weird, weird, strange. Like I mean, immediately kind of throws you out because not only does it start off with it, but like you know, you're like, okay, you know. 70s 80s different time different you know uh, sensibilities but you know the, the 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 cook i'm not spoiling anything here the, the cook makes yeah. a joke that's kind of backed up by the rest of the cooks which makes you like you know immediately it just kind of makes your skin crawl uh and and obviously they were going for a villain but it is definitely a creepy moment especially when he traps angela in the kitchen you know i got something for you here and it's just like oh god like you know, good thing Ricky came in there. I mean, even even that that aspect of like the uh, older camp owner having a relationship with with Meg M E G. By the way, you know, uh, <laughs> which I thought was insane. Just really uh, a lot of a lot of stuff happening there. One of the one of the wild things actually is one of those cooks, not the main cook, um, is James Earl Jones's dad. <laughs> what? Yeah, the the older guy and like well, I know which one. 
Yeah. But wow. <laughs> like, if you go and back, if you it sounds like it, him. Yeah. It, all of a sudden, I thought it, I was like, I was like, the age doesn't work out that this is James. And I was like, oh, it's his dad. And I'm like, can huh. you imagine your son's doing uh, <laughs> Star Wars around the same time you're doing this? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and I totally get what you guys mean. I think this movie just has so many moments that are like uh, instantly like funny to talk about. I think it's really interesting with um, a lot of these so bad it's good movies is like, I find uh, even something like Cats or any of those kind of like similar movies, Tammy and the T-Rex, the first time you watch it, it's funny. I feel like each consecutive watch, I think I've seen this like three times, each time you watch it, it gets funnier knowing what's coming up. Uh, you know, that Judy wears a shirt that says Judy. Um, the the kills are all like uh, kind of weirdly funny. Um, you know, uh, characters will say one of the deaths has, I'm going to go take a wicked dump and then dies in the toilet. It's so weird and feels, you know, so cheaply made, but like with a weird passion to it. Um, that I just, I find really fun and I totally get, um, uh, you know, finding it a little boring, but, um, uh, I think back to like the aunt Desiree Gould, um, who's only in two scenes and her performance is absolutely bonkers. Um, every like choice she makes is so over the top and feels like it's in a different film. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'd really like this, but. I can get why you wouldn't. Yeah, that, I mean, it was like she had like her own little like, I mean, it was very Lynchian. She had her own little like supervillain asides where she's like, I think I'll do this today. <laughs> yeah. oh, wait, should I do this today? I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> that was wild. It's, yeah, it's wild. But um, I will say from a slasher point of view, the kills were good. I mean, I, I will say that one shot when they flip over the canoe and the kid's laying there and the, the snake crawls out of his mouth is disturbing and but a good like oh this is this is creepy this is eerie like it really does get there with some of the you know the, the bees in the the bathroom stall like the kills are creative especially coming off like a friday the 13th like they definitely up the stakes a little bit but then it doesn't you know doesn't really go anywhere yeah i i also think um that's actually interesting that we did this this week i babysit for these um for this woman and i take care of the three kids um and she asked me to go on Friday night to go um, while she watched Rocky Horror Picture Show with like three friends. And she said, oh, I love Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's so much fun to watch in a theater with a whole group of people. And, you know, we all perform it. And then she got back and I was like, oh, how was it? And she goes, it was fine. It was okay. And I do wonder, I have never watched this movie alone. Whenever I watch it, um, usually I have like a friend on the phone and we're like texting back and forth and it is interesting. Um, you know, Tammy, I guess does a little bit better job of being great on its own by yourself, but something like this may need that audience kind of like build up, um, of, of these like bad movies. It's kind of, it is weird just to watch like a bad movie by yourself sometimes and like laugh at things and, you know, uh, kind of build upon that um so it's just kind of interesting to hear those reactions i would be curious if it would have been different because i do think this is a very much like midnight madness kind of movie um but 
uh, yeah, so we'll link to the uh, discussion um, with, I think it's Nick Spheres, um, who discusses the ending um, and the perceptions towards that. Um, it's really interesting, um, kind of gives the movie a different um, perspective, um, someone who's not us. So cool. Cool. So let's go ahead and let's end the episode how we always do with our recommendations for the week. I can go ahead and start us off. I'm going to be like that little bitch, that little uh, like film Twitter. I saw Dune this week, what I'm trying to say. I've been bragging. Um, but I'm not going to recommend the new Dune. I'm going to recommend the David Lynch Dune. I'm really happy that people are like reappreciating this film because I think it's better than the new one. Spoiler alert, we'll talk about it more next week. Um, I just think this one has a really strong aesthetic. It's really charming. I like the sci-fi like aesthetic. It's just, it's very me. Um, it's long. It's a little confusing. Definitely helps if you know the story of Dune which to be fair with any piece of content with Dune, it's such a convoluted and like dense story. If you, you should know what you're getting yourself into, hopefully before you watch any piece of media or even read the book really. Um, Cause I don't think any piece of media does a good job explaining what the story is. Um, but I really love this. I saw it for the first time this week for the new one. And I, I don't know why I doubted David Lynch. I know a lot of people really hate this, but I, I really appreciated it. It's shorter enough to where it's like, doesn't drag on and on and on. Um, I think it's methodical in its storytelling. And like I said, I just think the aesthetic works so much better than the new one. But we'll talk about all that more next week. Uh, Jack, why don't you go next? What's your recommendation for the week? Not to be a cop-out, but I watched the original Dune last night as well, the 1984 version. I couldn't find, because I know there's a theatrical and there's a, as an extended edition. I know nothing has got to do with uh, David Lynch, but um, I will, I'll, I'll go a different route. I watched um, The Drop with Tom Hardy and James Gandolfini and Numa Rupes of the night. Um, and I remember watching for the first time giving it, I think I give it like a light three stars or maybe a four. And I watched it again. And I was really surprised at how good it is. I mean, I'm, I'm back on a Sopranos binge after watching the Mary uh, Sitzman Newark. Um, I'm just trying to watch like, you know, more James Gandolfini stuff. Um, and I, I chose that over Killing Them Softly, which is another one of his last films. Um, uh, but I watched the drop and I just thought how magnificent the performances are. Um, I, I, I couldn't really remember lots of, lots of stuff about it when I first saw it, but I was really impressed of how, um, of how grim and gritty it was, you know, to, to see people from Brooklyn and, and to see how far Tom Hardy's progressed, like not using that, like, he does this thing where he usually emotes through his eyes, but here it's just all, he acts very uh, restrained and it, 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 it's almost like him doing like a, a, a Sheldon Big Bang impression half the time. So it's interesting to see how well he's, how he does now, considering like Venom 2 is a, is the uh, epitome of his acting performance nowadays. But I just really enjoyed it. So I recommend that. It's, it's nice to see Numi Rapierson as well. We've watched we, there's, there's three people here who really love Lamb. So, um, you know, it's nice to get, to get back and watch, to watch that. But hopefully I'll get to see that soon. But again, the late great James, uh, James Gandolfina, Tom Hardy's good and Numi Rapierson so is excellent. I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about Lamb anymore. Alina, <laughs> go for it. What's your recommendation? Um, my recommendation this week, I didn't watch any movies outside the podcast one. So instead I was watching you season three this weekend. I went to visit my best friend in Montreal. And every time we had downtime, we were watching a new episode of you because that show is so stupid and crazy that like, why did I go to Montreal to watch a fucking TV show? I could have watched by myself, but you know, I had to watch it with her. It's amazing. It's so good. Like it's so twisty. I felt like detective detect oh my god i felt like detective pikachu watching it the whole time it's great i love netflix garbage i can't wait for season four paul 
Um, so I've been doing the uh, Hooptober, and I finally got to the Hammer movies. And I had watched, um, I think, Curse of Frankenstein is what it's called last year. And it was fine. But I really enjoyed, um, it's either the horror of Dracula or just Dracula, depending. Um, it's the 1958 one. And it was just really fun. Um, it's a very like put on and you can like, if you happen to fall asleep, it doesn't matter. It's very like Sunday afternoon kind of movie. Um, and it's really great. I just really enjoyed um, all the performances. Christopher Lee is Dracula is fantastic. And Peter Cushing is uh, Van Helsing is really fun. But the overall mystery uh, I felt was really well done for a Dracula story. Usually I'm not particularly into vampire stories. So this was um, surprising to me because it is the most vampire of stories. Perfect. And Chris? Um, I've been trying to do like a horror movie a day too. I couldn't get my stuff together to do Hooptober. So I've just been kind of making my own. And I was going through my Netflix queue trying to find things that like I've just had sitting on there. And I just watched 2015's The Black Coat's Daughter with Kiernan Shipka and Emma Roberts. It's directed by Oz Perkins, who is the son of Anthony Perkins, um, Norman Bates from Psycho. So I thought that was pretty cool. It's very, it oozes atmosphere. It's got a really, really solid take on um, possession. So if we're not excited for David Gordon Green's Exorcist trilogy, this one is uh, really interesting and definitely a different view on it. I think the two leads are really fantastic. It does take its time to get where it's going, but I think once it does, it's definitely very well worth it. And I enjoyed it. Have you seen Gretel and Hansel yet? I have seen Gretel and Hansel. Yes. Did you like it? I enjoyed the visual aspects of the movie. I think I fell asleep like three times during it and it was still going. So this one is better, but you might also take a couple naps during it. That adds up. Cool. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Clappercast. Let's find wherever, where we can find everyone on social media. Alina. I am at Alina Falds on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Paul. At Price Like Tag on Twitter and Letterboxd. Jack. Um, I have the username at Jalu Sharp on Twitter and Letterboxd. And Chris? You can find me at Chris Manning, but the S in Chris is a five on any social media platform. Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews, Letterbox just Carson Tamar. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Clappercast. We have new episodes coming on schedule every single Wednesday, but October is kind of crazy. We have some bonus episodes. This is coming out a bit late. We did an episode earlier this week. So just know it's a little bit chaotic, but normally every single Wednesday, write us an email at clappercast at gmail.com. Listen to all your favorite podcast platforms. Give us a five stars. You didn't, you gave Lamb five stars and it sure as hell did not deserve it. So you can give us one, even if you don't think we deserve it. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema. Goodbye.